Hey folks, Caleb here with a quick note. We had some technical issues with our call on this episode, resulting in audio files getting corrupted. Long story short, we were able to patch most of the episode together from backups, but some parts may sound a little distorted. Sorry about that. It's a good conversation, so I hope you'll still enjoy listening. The wheel of time turns, and ages come and go, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth, and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. In one age, called the Third Age by some, an age yet to come, an age long past, a wind rose in the mountains of mist. The wind was not the beginning. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the wheel of time. But it was a beginning. The Wheel of Time turns and podcasts come and go. Welcome to Wattcast, a Wheel of Time book and watch club. We are reading through Robert Jordan's epic fantasy series and watching Amazon's Wheel of Time TV show. Today, we're concluding the first book in that written series, The Eye of the World. I'm Caleb Wimble, and with me are Kitty Jarvis. Hello. And Keely Frank. Hello. You can find us at wattcast.net and support the show at patreon.com slash wattcast. Your support means a lot. Even $2 at the Two Rivers here helps. If you're able to join us on Patreon at the $5 Tar Valentier, you will be entering the White Tower, where you'll get access to special bonus episodes, where we talk about things like Wheel of Time adjacent media, tie-ins, and other fantasy epics. Email us questions, comments, and corrections via contact at wattcast.net with the subject line questions. We'll answer them here on the show. We have a letter today from a listener, which we'll be reading right after our discussion of these chapters. Last time, we talked about episode 6 of the TV show, and chapters 41 to 45 of The Eye of the World. We saw our party reunited at last in both of them. The touching reunion didn't last long because we learned the Dark One was close to reaching out of his prison to seize the Eye of the World itself, whose power will be enough to break him free. Moraine temporarily healed Matt of the Shadar Logoth Dagger's curse, then took the party through the dangerous ways between space and time, racing to reach the Eye. This episode of Wattcast, we are finishing the Eye of the World with chapters 46 to 53. My god, uh, do these chapters go quickly, and does a whole lot happen in them that we will do our best to summarize here. Uh, And joining us now on the call is our co-host, Dan. Hey, everyone. Good to have you back on, Dan. Uh, since you're since you're just now getting here, we'll we'll toss the ball to you to try to describe for us what happens in Chapter Forty Six, Faldara. So, Marine's party uh, exits the way near Faldara. Faldara, apologies, hundreds of miles from where they started. Lane is welcomed like royalty. The pursuer from the way turns out to be the peddler Payton Fane, who somehow survived Mackinshin, whose mind has been drastically altered. Uh, Moraine decides to interrogate him further for more information. Yeah, so we're getting a lot of things confirmed that we've long suspected here, um, I th- and several points on which we were way ahead of the characters in terms of, like, uh, Patton Fane, for instance. I, th- I think we were all pretty certain about that from the bigger appearances there. 
Uh, we're getting a lot more context uh, context for that now. Uh, what did you all think of this chapter and uh, what we learned about Faldara, what we see of this place, and, uh, and what is really um, the most drastic setting change we've had in a while? <laughs> we're all just, just champing at the bit for this one. <laughs> um, I can step in here. Um, you know, I, I think it was it was interesting. Like, I felt like we entered a whole new world here. And like you said at the beginning, it's like much more fast paced. Um, so that that was an interesting aspect of the the ending, which I, I feel like kind of starts right here. Um, and uh, an, another thing I thought interesting about this section of uh, talking about P- Padan Fane um, is that he had been on such a long quest, like, I think, mm-hmm. apparently for like three years, he had been searching around um, for the you know, for the dragon reborn, but, but his way was just not very clear. Um, so his has been a really long journey. So I, I feel like the, there was a really interesting aspects to that. You kind of get a bit of his backstory, um, which I liked. Uh, and it also obviously gives perspective to um, what the dark one had been up to for the past three years. Yeah. It sort of builds on that. Um, this is why certain things happen throughout the book. And you're just now finding out it's kind of more of that, that dump mm-hmm. of like, tying up the loose ends, explaining the rationale, what, like why certain events had happened. Um, he's directly involved with some of that, especially the orchestration of the Trollocs coming to the two rivers in the first place. So they're really, I, I feel like I've gotten this vibe from the last few chapters and then the ones we've read um, for this section. Jordan's really trying to tie up a lot of loose ends. And he, I feel like he had so many pages to do this and it didn't have to feel as rushed as, mm. as it did or kind of all at the end, but like he had almost 750 pages and the last 10 chapters really try to tie up a lot of that. And I don't understand why. I, I just feel like the pacing is not the strongest thing about this book. <laughs> like it's like mm. so much um, tying up loose ends and kind of, um, kind of giving a lot of background that the audience like the reader was kind of not privy to in the first quarter and half of the book. Uh, I don't know why that wasn't just like put throughout the entire novel and kind of like tied in a little closer together in like a more final draft. Um, I, I can kind of expand about that as we talk about the later chapters. But yeah, this one, this, it's one of those mm-hmm. reminders that there's just so much that's now dumped on you like near the end of the book. Yeah, something that Keely had mentioned in the chat about these chapters was that this was the first time not well in in the course of these chapters as they approach the blight that it really felt like a fantasy universe i think you said yeah. katie or, or keely sorry and and to me um yeah it's kind of also what you're getting at dan in terms of the pacing here that i it does feel like maybe uh, an issue where if there had been one more draft of the story the a big piece of beta, beta of our beta reader feedback maybe or at least mine might have been to oh Jordan you're you're developing all this cool stuff here along the blight and and the journey into it this should really be like maybe the whole last act of the story you could get so much mileage out of the bringing us into this more alien landscape that we're going into here and you've done all the work of setting up the the world of normalcy to establish a baseline at the beginning and the world for like a very very small corner of it the two rivers where that is just oblivious to everything else going on but yeah like you said dan maybe maybe we didn't need to spend quite as much time as we did there or on the road from there to a camelin even though there's a lot i like about those chapters and and i feel like if i were restructuring the book it'd be yeah you've got three very clear acts here we have the first act should be uh, two rivers and the fleeing of two rivers and out into the wider world. Second act, you can really be like getting into the, the biggest dangers of their journey, seeing the broader world and bringing everyone back together. And then, you know, dedicate the whole last 200, 300 pages to 
uh, I would probably, you know, say Faldara and, and, and everything going out from here. We're getting so much interesting flavor here. Some of it is maybe maybe on the side of questionable in terms of its success uh, in building out a, con- a convincing world here just yet anyway. Uh, and maybe maybe I feel that way because of the extent to which when we first arrive in, in Faldara, I don't know, th- this place feels very concrete to me and it feels well established. The, the only thing I am uncertain of is what to me now seems very clearly like um, the uh, the the kind of surface level aesthetic that Jordan is pulling in of vaguely some vaguely Eastern Asian, vaguely Chinese, Japanese features, and particularly in the language, uh, some of which the spelling uh, uh, and the pronunciation will sound like something uh, Chinese for a moment, maybe uh, uh, like you, you uh, but then like the has words mixed in that are absolutely nothing that you uh, that sound like sound like you would hear from a, from a Chinese or Japanese speaker or, or uh, that general language group, like like consonant sounds and vowel sounds that don't belong here. But then other things that just sound like somebody trying to sort of some English speaking person doing a gibberish uh, like fake Chinese kind of thing. I don't know. What did we think about about that element? Of, uh, was that something that even jumped out here in these? I was sort of fixating on details of these conversations this time. I totally know what you're referring to, and I can't I can't pull it off out of the top of my head. Um, there was like an example of a name they said that I'm like, wow, this sounds very close to another one. Kind of the same way that the the Dark Lord's name sounds very similar to like Beelzebub and other references from like biblical and other like religions and all that. Um, definitely picked up on that with some of the the language and um, the naming for places and people in this chapter. The thought. Um, it, it was almost maybe a bit much for me that these people seemed to react to this group so differently than everyone else had before. And I think only because it was kind of like rushed in at the ending that I felt that way. Mm. But, um, you know, like, like land sort of had a different persona here and the Ogre did, and even the aspect of their perspective on Aes Sedai, um, yeah, they just seemed to have like mm-hmm. a different way of thinking about things. And I was like, I was like, I don't really want a whole nother way of thinking about things right here at the <laughs> at the epic conclusion of the book. But I mm. I think I just fully agree with what you said, Caleb, that if it had been the whole third act that this took place in, I would probably feel differently about that. And it's almost like this ending seems like a first draft ending. And then mm-hmm. when you would go back and write another draft, you would be like, okay, I'm going to, you know, feed in some of these ideas earlier and kind of expand upon this section. Um, yeah, but but that's not what ended up happening. Yeah, and it, and it does feel from that story construction level. I guess I would say the only, the thing that doesn't feel first draft to me is maybe the, the writing quality here, because I, I feel like this is one of the places where maybe Jordan's writing is shining the most in the descriptions yeah. that we get along along the way in the action sequences. Maybe still not in the dialogue. I'm still not convinced by the the teenage dialogue, although I'm fine with the, you know, the grownups in the room for the most part. But some of the things you were getting to, Katie, I guess we'll just say it's chapter 47, More Tales from the Wheel, where the Emmons Fielders learn that, that Lan is the uncrowned king of Malkir, a nation swallowed by the Great Blight. And we are getting so much backstory delivered in the form of literally, okay, sit down and let me tell you a tale and we'll get into the, let, let's do some more lore. We've got so much to cram in here. Yep. And, and again, wouldn't feel so crammed if we had more time to flesh this out, but you got to know, okay, um, here, here's the story. Here's the land's parentage and here's uh, what happened to Malkir. And it does feel almost too, like this jarring tone shift back into like, um, the 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 count the council of Elrond and and sitting around the table getting okay here's the important mythic backstory you need to know but the tone switch is so 
back and forth between the very, you know, casual conversation and the and the people just being like, okay, what's going on? What's important? What what is happening right now? And the fact that it's not the Council of Elrond where we have days and weeks and months, maybe even to sit around talking about this and assemble the peoples of the world. Moraine is constantly like, okay, we got to go now. If I didn't, if we didn't need a night's sleep, I would have us going right now, right this minute. We would just be marching through uh, Agomar or Agomar, the um, is it the Lord or mm-hmm. the or the King of Faldara, uh, whichever he is. He's he's you know trying to convince them to let him send some soldiers along with them and not to bring these you know untrained two rivers farmers. And this is where, as you started describing, uh, we. Moraine, Moraine actually does her interrogation of Padden Fane, who admits to being sort of a hound for the Dark One, and also believes that the Dark One is free or almost free from his prison <laughs> at Shio Ghoul and the Blight. And I actually do, I think the the Moraine relating what she learns from the interrogation of Padden Fane, that delivery to me works much better than when we slip into this mode with Agomar of here's the grand backstory of Lan's family and here's and and I do again I like what we learned about Lan here and his context as you know the obvious Aragorn of this novel and we learned here that Padden Fane is the golem of this novel and all the way including like up up to being you know dragged uh, into Sheogul and and tortured and uh, like having the flame burned into him and turned into this hound in a set of, I thought, a uh, pretty great description of how he just becomes, he, he what the Dark One did to him seems to be essentially give him this ability to to sense Taverin or, so, or something, or to sense maybe things that are like the reincarnated dragon. I'm not really clear on that, but also this awful physical, almost described in terms of hunger, need to hunt them down to where the point where he gets far enough away from, from them that he is just like, his his body or subconscious forcing him to just go march all day every day not even able to stop to eat and so he's just trying to he's like grabbing fistfuls of garbage and, and stuff from middens along the way to try and keep himself alive um so uh so yeah i thought i thought that stuff was a pretty successful um description of, of what he's been through along the way Do, uh, what what so any thoughts on i guess this chapter is yeah mostly mostly lan and his backstory and pad and fame and his backstory <laughs> I, I think lands could have been condensed. Like they go into this whole, whole history. And remember, there's a clear point when they finally like bring in like Agamar as he's telling this finally like ties it back to land. And I'm like, you could have reduced a lot of that build up to land's backstory. Like could have been condensed mm-hmm. a lot. Um, or if you wanted to go into this long history of it, I think that should have been started much earlier um, and not in this chapter. So they've been hinting mm-hmm. at it for a while. And a lot of the build it's now just fleshing that out a little further but i think that could have been condensed from like almost a whole chapter to at most like a page or two describing that hmm. it's just not the right setting for this with with what you were talking about with the pacing and moraine like yeah I, I, that's been kind of a consistent theme in the book like the slowdown of the pacing even though they're telling you like characters are telling you it's supposed to be a fast uh, situation it's like they're still having mm-hmm. these moments that slow you down they have long conversations. I think sw- like swapping locations or kind of the adjusting the pacing a little bit for to match the cues the characters are giving would would have been more appropriate. Hmm. I kind of wish that he would have written a novella just about Lan um, to go hmm. in between books one and two because for me the last few chapters felt like an entirely separate book um, because there's so much build up. You know they spend so much time getting to places. And then it's like, boom, we hit the blight and it's super creepy and I love all that setting. And then boom, we're in Faldara. And you know, it's like, yeah, yeah. it was very fast. And I was really enjoying learning about like all the lore of land. And I was like, oh, cool. Like he's got this backstory. 
And then, well, too fucking bad. We got to move on to the next thing. And so it all just felt like super duper rushed at the end. And I felt like I was enjoying some of this content more than other parts. So I wish Mm -hmm. you just would have, you know, either space it out, like you said, like make it in thirds or just like hard stop cliffhanger novella and then, you know, like other (laughs) shit. Um, and also I just wanted to apologize. I didn't hit send. I meant to send you guys a message right as we started recording. There was a giant fucking spider on my desk. <laughs> we, I started packing for moving today and I was like taking down pictures and stuff. So I guess it was like on the wall or something. So I ran and got my husband and he confirmed that it was indeed a giant fucking spider. I wasn't exaggerating. So the, like, the blight is bleeding out into your apartment. <laughs> oh my God. It was like, it was right on the edge of my speaker and I have my keyboard pushed against my speaker so I can put my notebook down and I was like I can't even type I'm gonna die (laughs) Um, but so I did I did enjoy learning about Lan I just wish that like I hope we get more like don't introduce something so fucking cool and then never go back to it like please don't do that to us please give us more Mm -hmm. in another book when you're describing that, Keely, I just realized that the the pacing structure of the first book is very similar to the way that the first Dune movie operates. Like these, mm. like they tried to cram so much in at the very last point and then left on like a teaser for more to come. But it's like, why didn't you just like leave that, like put that in the next movie or uh, however you want to do a TV show, whatever. Just like that should have been cut out from the first movie part one or whatever they were doing. Like they had like kind of a slow pacing or kind of like a very consistent pacing in the same way that this book has had a consistent pacing of like like more drawn out conversations, a lot of fleshed mm-hmm. out world building, but like less color. And then he throws in all this color and fantastical elements and good like environment um, descriptions and um, new characters. And they all come in in these last five chapters. And it's like, why didn't you just save this for the next one? Um, it very much felt similar to the, like, it, I don't know, same reaction I had to the first Dune movie and its ending kind of feels applicable to this. Which maybe uh, is why the show is having the impulse to combine it so much with the great hunt elements and bring some of those great great hunt elements forward uh although we've we've had our issues with the show's pacing as well of of just rushing through large early sequences so it'll be interesting to see how they now have two episodes left uh including tomorrow's as of the time we're recording this to do the ways in its entirety that's got to be at least 20 30 minutes probably most of the episode I, i feel like we'll find out uh and then to do all of shinar and all of all of uh the blight and maybe Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll end on a cliffhanger before the things that happened here. I don't know. Though I hope they establish some of these details, which feel pretty critical to me of the setting. Uh, critical in a way that they're essential. Like I did love learning. This detail jumped out to me of how the extent to which 50 years ago, that recently, Shyanar was not a borderland kingdom. Uh, and then north of them was still Arafel. Uh, and then north of Arafel was Malkier. And, and I do love this sense of how oblivious the rest of the world seems to be to how quickly the blight is encroaching now and that an entire kingdom can disappear into the blight in one generation because of uh, of one family's uh, interpersonal drama and throne-seizing drama in the backstory that we get for Lan here. That's how quickly that's happening, which feels very, you know, similar again, maybe that's also a Lord of the Rings thing. And when Boromir shows up at the council, being, no, no, you all, y'all don't get it more. Like half of Gondor has been swallowed by Mordor in the last couple of weeks. It's crossing the river. We're losing like great cities full of people. And it's also what Game of Thrones will bring in big effect with the, everything going on at the wall that we see 
and that the watch sees up north and that John is privy to. And the rest of the world is like, yeah, whatever. We've got we've got politics to deal with down here. We're not going to worry about the existential threat that is just leaping miles and miles southward over these decades here. So I like getting that sense of urgency into the world building. And I'm excited to see how that affects the rest of the series now that I, I do want I do hope uh, that the rest of the trilogy is as good, big of an improvement as I remember. I remember book two and three feeling like we really got into the flow of things. We really started being more than just uh, Lord of the Rings uh, redux in some ways. And you know, we'll, we'll find out to what extent that that's true or not in here. Yeah, but some of the stuff like, you know, we're hearing about Jane Farstrider again, who's like a recent sort of heroic folk figure that's been sung of in songs and has come up in some of um, some of uh, Tom's gleam and bits and all that. Uh, I would I would put that in the too much, even for me, even knowing the context of these books, just too much category of uh, way too many lore details to keep track of here. I, even I was like, OK, what Jane Farstrider now? And there was some sort of plot going on with the you know being brought to the Seven Towers in Chains and... And, and oh, Lord, it's a lot beyond learning about land, you know, as an infant in, in a cradle. And yeah, maybe the way the way that y'all said getting the novella spinoff of the land backstory and all that would have been a way to handle it, which is the way that Jordan does handle Moraine and her lore and her relationship with Swan, with Swan Sanche. That's all in its own prequel, A New Spring, much of which we're getting sprinkled into the show as we go, which we talked about extensively, Keely, you and I and, and Nick this past week. Uh, we do have it confirmed. I, I don't know if we said for sure on air, Pod and Fane was the one who brought the Trollocs into the two rivers, for, for which we, again, long suspected. And and we still don't know if the show is going to make Pod and Fane a thing at all, because we got that first episode scene where he gives like a very weird look uh, at, at everything going around in Emmons Field and then back sort of away and, and seems to run away in the midst of that fight. Well, I think they're gonna, um, because I remember like we talked about for a little while that weird face that he made where it wasn't sure if he was yep. like, fuck this, I'm out, or if he was like, everything's going to plan. And then it was someone on the subreddit pointed him out that whole, that he was in Tarvalon for that whole scene of dragging Loghain through things. So I think that they are, to some extent, going to bring him along um, yeah. and make oh, him... You know this character. Did they do that? Then I was wondering after reading this section, then remembering he's only in the first episode. I was like, did they do like little like like sprinkle him into like different shots without you knowing it? Like unless you were mm-hmm. paying attention for. Him. Okay, I, I was yeah. figuring. I was like, I wasn't looking mm-hmm. for him, but my hunch was if I kind of watched those episodes again and was like looking for that character who only shows up one time before, then like he might be there to. Set I don't up. know. Even if you rewatched that, you would notice the one that Keely brought to our attention via Reddit. Like, I because I went back and looked over that scene. I'm like, why is it so quick and? so mm-hmm. subtle i can barely see him there uh, so, that's too, too little uh, yeah yeah that's why i'm i mean i'm hoping that they'll do go through the ways they feel someone following them and then you know it'll be him because you know now they they bring him back and you find out he's been a dark friend for 40 fucking years and so they start playing mm. back all the times that he's been in the two rivers and oh. the different behaviors that he had yeah yeah and, like he's clearly a big fucking deal so like if they didn't have him it makes no sense for why the Trollocs came and all that stuff. Like they use him as that bridge to bring them in. So I hope that the show will do, but who the fuck knows, I guess. <laughs> I was going to say, maybe they'll do literally the same thing and flashes back a sequence of shots where he was in the background, but make it close up so we can see like, oh, secretly he's been in almost every episode this season or something. Yeah, but it doesn't feel like they kind of set up, like it almost feels <laughs> like a gotcha moment because in the book, at least this is one thing Jordan did well. There's a lot of moments where I recall like a beggar or like kind of a mm-hmm. like an unidentified figure 
Mm-hmm. And that works better. Like in the show, you can't throw in one scene of this dude and then try to be like, gotcha at the end and bring him back in and like show those moments throughout when it's like been so freaking subtle. It's like not even mm-hmm. like something you can almost like, like most of the time you want to be able to kind of spot that on your own and put that together as an, an audience. Yeah, I feel like yeah. only book readers could put that together. It's too subtle. So if he comes in, it's just like a gotcha moment almost. I would say though, like my favorite type of horror movies are those like found footage, there's shit in the background. Mm. movies so if they do that in like the next a couple episodes where they do flashbacks of like him in the background the whole fucking time and i didn't see him that like that's gonna trigger me i'm so excited i hope (laughs) that they do that like make me uneasy i fucking love that um but yeah it's definitely and it feels you know i don't know if we would necessarily feel the same way if we weren't also watching this show but how fucking obvious it is to us who some of the characters are that like throughout this whole thing sometimes they're Mm. like i wonder who that beggar is or like that's weird someone's asking or like did you (laughs) did he not just fucking run straight at you covered in shit like in that one town (laughs) Um, so it, it's going to be nice if, if it's kind of like a slap in the face to them in the mm. show, be like, ha ha, <laughs> you fuckers not paying attention. You deserve this. That's maybe a way of not having the characters seem as oblivious to that. It's like really hard for even us to notice that the audience, but yeah, I guess we'll, we'll know if how we'll know if it's successful when we see the next episode or two, maybe. Although we have so much to get through in the blight, we should really get into there with. Katie, do you want to tell us about chapter 48, appropriately titled The Blight? Sure. Um, I started I started loving the chapters right about here. Um, we go into The Blight. Um, so the Faldaran soldiers are heading north to Tarwin's Gap, um, and Moraine's party slips into The Blight by another way. Um, the Blight is beautifully described and full of sickly, twisted, and dangerous plants and animals. Um uh, Nynaeve and Lan uh, bear their hearts to one another and Lan does not wish to subject her to his inevitable fate. Um, so they have kind of a sweet moment. Um, and I'll agree with what Caleb said earlier that basically like starting here, I, I do feel like the language and the writing becomes like really beautiful uh, and descriptive and evocative in a way that I didn't necessarily feel for the whole rest of the book. Um, but that that was really nice to see. And there were just like paragraphs that I would read again, just because they were just interesting with detail and language. And, and that was a, a good aspect for me. Some real good, uh, you, you have all, all probably gotten some sense of various points of, I'm a real sucker for gross stuff, in, especially in, in horror, like dark fantasy things. So I was really into like this paragraph about the sticks, like just the, like the smallest insect in this place. Lan is telling, Lan is like angry when Rand is about to reach out to touch a, brand, a branch and Lan is like, uh, don't touch anything. Flowers can kill in the blight and leaves maim. There's a little thing called a stick that likes to hide where the leaves are thickest, Look, looking its name, waiting for something to touch it. When it does, it bites, not poison. The juice begins to digest the stick's prey for it. The only thing that can save you is to cut off the arm or leg that is bitten. That was bitten. And and that's like sort of the least of this. We get we get like these long, well, not even, not long really, but just good like full paragraph descriptions of mile by mile, the corruption of the blight became more apparent. The leaves stained and spotted with yellow and black, uh, livid red streaks like blood poisoning, 
every leaf and creeper seemed bloated, ready to burn. Anyway, I, I won't I won't read it all because I just have so many highlights in here of really really uh, evocative. Like, ooh, I got to bring this into a D and D campaign. These are good good <laughs> descriptions here. Yeah, a lot of lot of fun writing. But did anyone laugh when they're like, let's they're like, why don't we just like rest by the lake? And then like the monster like tentacles water <laughs> come up instantly. I was like, it's almost like a movie <laughs> yeah. when they're like, let's they're like, why, why can't we get down there by the yeah. water? It looks great. <laughs> and it's like instantly like stuff comes out of the water and they're like, okay, tentacles. Yep. Not doing that. It is almost comical at times how crowded it is and how quickly they're beset by all these creatures. I really enjoyed it. Like, I was picturing this as kind of a, a way over the top, um, like, fire swamp from the Princess Bride movie where, like, mm-hmm. everything looks so different and chill. And then you get into this disgusting area where, like, you could die at any second. And um, so I was really enjoying that. Um Again, I wish that we would have like a novella all about the blight, and, like the things that exist in it, like the d- mm-hmm. different animals and the trees and whatever the fuck that was in the water. <laughs> like, I wish that they would talk about that more because so is the blight supposed to be like, is the dark one creating it or is it like supposed to be what's just happening because he's using the power and it's an evil thing? So it's just like rotting everything. Like, how are these things existing? It's a good question. I don't think we get an answer here, and I don't know the lore answer. My impression is almost like it's a form of magical radiation of sorts, and that might like like you know the kind of um, corruption leaking out from the Dark One's prison, and that's probably because it reminds me of things like Roadside Picnic, uh, which was the basis for the Stalker movie by Tarkovsky and and the games where you have these areas that are just walking into and and everything that's there has been affected by in those cases like an alien form of radiation that they don't understand that changes everything and reminds me of those and of old uh old like weird fiction genre tales from like um what what was uh hp lovecraft's friend's name um uh, ashton clark smith uh stories of these kind of not quite fantasy not quite sci-fi sometimes they were sci-fi like this was back before we knew what the surface of Mars was like, so you could write stories about people going to Mars and it would be this sort of environment and have like space radiation causing all these things. I was also really reminded of uh, 2018's film Annihilation and, and the, oh, uh, the, yeah. the beautiful, colorful alien plant and animal environment spreading out in that same kind of blight-like way yeah. from a central there, that mystery, which I think that's based on some really well-regarded sci-fi books I haven't read yet, the Southern Reach trilogy, which are very high on my read list I need to get to. But but uh, but because of all those things, I was thinking of it in terms of kind of a, a radiation, uh, like of like mutate, mutating everything just because of the Dark One's presence. Maybe it's deliberate too. I don't I don't know. What do you what, what do you think, Katie and Dan? They didn't. I mean, so it flows into the next chapters too, but it seems to persist even after they kind of push the dark one away. Um, I know we haven't gotten to that part yet with the confrontation and everything in like the last few chapters uh, um, that come right after this, but it seemed to still persist afterwards. So it felt like a lingering rot. So uh, they don't really talk about the origin, but I guess it could be like that radiation kind of description you're providing. Mm-hmm. But I didn't, I don't know. I didn't question it too much. And that is interesting though. There's some things I just take for, I'm surprised too, because they give so much background on everything, but they really didn't do that with this. They did for the ways and everything else, but do they, am I just missing descriptions from like Moraine or something? Do they not talk about the origin? I don't think so. That's odd with how much backstory they give to everything they introduce, like in Jordan's writing style. So maybe that's coming up in the second book and we just haven't gotten there yet. Hmm. About the connection of the blight and the eye of the world. Like, are they, is the blight always where the eye of the world is? Because I know that 
it, that can move, I, I think is my understanding. So that I was all, I just had, I had a lot of questions that probably mm. like I could have used another read through of these chapters, but I definitely had a lot of questions here. Um, but that was one of them. Does anyone have any, uh, yeah, answers about whether the blight is like, is it guarding the eye or I don't know. Yeah, I have so many so questions. <laughs> So maybe there are something that it might just be useful for me to clear up definitively because I felt the same way. And based on what Keely was saying about like um, the almost uh, was this a dream sequence at certain points, things I remembered distinctly the first time I read this as a kid being almost feeling like I was in a fever dream for these last couple chapters of, of what the hell is going on. Yeah. And I did reread it again at the time came to understand it better when reading The Great Hunt and the beginning of The Great Hunt will like sort of flat out give us some of the answers to these things. But I do going back to it now in this chapter, like reading it for the third or fourth time, I guess, you can be like, okay, uh, the things that I think are meant to be clear here that kind of get lost in Jordan's pacing and just uh, here and <laughs> having to rush us to the finale is that um, the, the eye was deliberately hidden and we're getting into the details of who hid it and who put it here, deliberately hidden in the blight near the place where the dark one's prison is at its weakest, where he can sort of reach through into the physical world. And it was the Aes Sedai, the then male and female Aes Sedai who, who placed it here, who hid it and uh, whose protection, it was put in the protection of the green man who we're, we're going to get to. In a, in a moment so that you can only find the place if you have great uh, need and, and genuine need for its intended purpose, which we'll also get to. But it but the, but it is it's not the I guess the chick the chicken, the chicken is the dark ones uh, prison breaking out here. And the egg is is the Aes Sedai coming and putting the eye of the world here next to his prison uh, this weak spot for a very particular purpose. Which is ultimately to be, it seems like, I think, to be able to seal the prison, the seal back if it starts to weaken the seal that is placed on his prison there. This is a reserve of power, a very special reserve that we'll get to, I guess, in chapter 50, 51. Uh, we should, let's see, any, any, the only, I guess the only other things on 48 to, definitely wanted to get to was we did have clarified by this conversation of naive and land here that a wisdom seldom weds in the book. Whereas the show may change it to because we got early drama with Egwene and Rand about how a wisdom isn't prohibited from from getting married in in the TV show we learned there's sort of a, a a Catholic priest situation going going on and or from having kids or anything uh, I thought this was a pretty effectively romantic scene between the two of them I don't the dialogue is a little stagey a little a little stiff in some places but I actually couldn't decide if this is one of the few places it works that we're getting it from kind of Rand only eavesdropping and picking up snippets of their their relationship has kind of always been in the background in a way that I'm glad is in the foreground in the show and we get all the wonderful stuff from Nynaeve and Land's perspectives but this was one of the few scenes where it actually felt like I thought like we gained something from the almost voyeuristic sense of suddenly realizing oh they've gotten much closer than we even realized at this point in the book to where they're actually talking about a future together or you know Land insisting that they can't have a future together kind of thing. Yeah, I was, I was hoping we'd bring up this section because I do feel it is like one of the first like genuine and like complete conversations we have between the both of them. It's more of hints. And then like you're saying, the show builds out more. A lot of my a lot of the things I like about the characters are projections from the show because they flush them out so much mm. more and give them so much more personality and interest. Whereas like they feel like template characters in the book for the most part. And this is like one of the few times Jordan actually tries to like have cool 
like I missed that. It's just like an element he's lacking. It's like really good descriptions of like the fantasy setting and like kind of the world building. Some of the lore are really fantastic, but it's just like there's not a lot of really good character interactions at all, um, and they all feel a little cold. So it's great. I, I especially liked like Ran trying to like fake sleep because he doesn't want to like embarrass um, Nynaeve by like letting her know that he's like was listening to the conversation or he's aware of her crying. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a very human moment right before the fi- like the finale climax. So like I like that they had that like kind of quiet moment there because Jordan just kind of forgets to include a lot of the like human elements to his narrative. So uh, yeah, like we've only seen there. them flirt flirting before, mm-hmm. right? From yeah. early from Nynaeve's perspective, uh, but we haven't had a Nynaeve perspective chapter in like what twenty chapters or something. I, I don't know. <laughs> Did anyone else hate it? <laughs> Or am I the only one that hated, hated this it. whole thing? Okay. I hated it. I hated it so much. And maybe it's because it caught me completely totally off guard because everything was so like dark and fucked up and moving really fast. And then it felt like out of nowhere, they just had this like deep connection and were talking to each other about like the future and all this. I was like, where the fuck did that come from? Like that felt, mm. it felt so thrown in and it didn't feel genuine to me at all because my, maybe my brain was just not in the place to give a shit about their relationship um but i just completely forgot about the two of them uh because <laughs> it's just been rand like this whole fucking time mm-hmm. and then you know weird comments about Egwene and rand and i completely forgot and then so the two of them i wrote down like that was fucking weird like <laughs> i didn't like that at all i like the reactions of of like mm-hmm. Egwene with Nynaeve after and like ran just trying to be chill about it but like afterwards like land not making eye contact with her and like things being weird i was like what the fuck is this like this is supposed to be a fantasy what is this bullshit i don't care about <laughs> well it's all i i completely see that but i saw it as like they often have that in movies like right before they go to like the final fight or whatever they everyone gets their feelings out because they don't know if they're gonna die or not mm-hmm. so i think it was like naive being like look it's like it I, I like you yeah I don't think Jordan's earned that, to your point. Yeah, Keely, I don't think they have it enough in the book. And I think I forgive it a lot because the show's done a lot better about, like, mm. a lot of flirtatious moments or, like, really good dialogue between them. I like Lan and Nynaeve a lot better in the I like all the characters a lot better in the, the show. Yeah, yeah. But I'm projecting, <laughs> I'm projecting my like of them, and I think it makes me more forgiving of conversations like this because this and even, like, the prior chapter where we're saying feels different in the character interactions felt more like the show. So I think the show's been pulling from some of the later, like, settings and character reactions and interactions um and they're pulling that a lot in way earlier than the book does but i sort of saw that as like the final like we could die i'm going to profess my love for you and i want to be with you and land just being like it's forsaken or whatever we can't do it it's like i'm not the person for you kind of the i'm a solo warrior kind of thing and I and I will hate the man you choose because it's not me. And, and but I will yeah, love him. I love him if he makes you smile, kind of thing. <laughs> I, I you know what I will say where where we probably have complete Venn diagram overlap here is I really hate the Rand and Egwene stuff. None of that works for me. None of that is earned. None of that is. Yeah. I'm just like rolling my eyes at at every turn, and I, it's just so. They're still too much real. There's still too much middle middle schoolers here. I yeah. agree. Like we, we need to have that future development brought in from the later books and the way that the show is doing and just aging them up making everybody a little bit more emotionally mature i like i like the idea i don't know it just seems so trite to me where where Gwen's like oh you know i'll make you my warder when i'm an i said you'd like that won't you and he says i'd like being that and it feels kind of condescending from Rand's side and it feels kind of stagey and that both of them are just performing being adults in a relation in a relationship which neither of them are really emotionally capable of but, at this yeah point. i think 
Oh, he could have taken cues from like, so Rowling does a pretty good job about that in Harry Potter where they don't get into that until they're older. So like the earlier books don't try to get really sappy and dramatic with like love relationships. It's all just friendships and everything. Mm-hmm. And it's so much more powerful in a fantasy setting when they're, especially with younger characters, it's like you can build those genuine emotions and not have this really like kind of shitty, like over dramatic, like love, like triangles or they're not even doing a triangle. It's just that. I don't know, like, I just, her character overall, like, despite being younger, it's just, she's so uninteresting in the book. She's, like, weepy. She wants protection from Bran. And in, like, the show, she's kind of, like, a Hermione in some ways. She's more intelligent. She's empathetic. I I find her, I find all the female characters a lot more interesting in the show. And it's, like, a lot of the great qualities, she's, like, sincere, whereas, like, Nynaeve is more of, like, kind Mm -hmm. of a stickler for things and sticking to the rules and, like, less emotive. But they're both dynamic. And in here, she's just so weak. She's crying all the time. She needs protection from Ran. She just, uh, there's, like, no development of her character at all. She just feels like the weepy, like, like side character that needs protection from the main chosen hero. Mm-hmm. Especially given, did you bring up uh, Keely last time we talked uh, with, with Nick about how, you know, Egwene almost started out feeling like she was going to be the early hero of, mm-hmm. of the story? Yeah, and uh, I feel like, you know, I've worked in social services for 10 years, and any time that you have these characters, whether they're teenagers or older or whatever, where there's, like, controlling, jealousy, I need to protect you, any of that kind of shit, it's not going to fly with me. Like, I, you can't mm. even say, like, oh, well, they're supposed to be teen. I don't give a fuck if they're teenagers. Teach them early that you shouldn't be jealous of, of, your, of whoever you're interested in. They're allowed to talk to other people of opposite or same or you know whatever whatever gender whatever and so this whole idea of rand being like you know instead of it coming across as like oh well he wants to protect Egwene because they've grown up together and you know she means a lot to him it's just coming across as like creepy jealous boyfriend um Mm. and i'm just not going to like that at all so i feel like if this conversation had happened with the show versions you know like dan you were saying i would be so much more on board because it would make sense that like he they're older he just wants to you know he's got this like loving thing and not it being like a creepy controlling bullshit thing yeah almost every thought that rand had about Egwene throughout this whole section like caleb was saying just it irritated me and i i was conscious of the fact that it wasn't supposed to like i don't believe yeah that, that was the reading intended like i think it was intended to show rand's like love and sensitivity and fear and like longing for home in the past but it really just read to me as like condescending slightly sexist uh yeah and slightly jealous and i yeah i think it was i think it's like part of failing in the like completeness of these characters and part of failing of just maybe dialogue that that's just not yeah. the, the strongest writing aspect of this book um yeah, but but as like as I was getting annoyed, I was like, "You're not supposed to be annoyed. You're supposed to feel bad for these characters. <laughs> You're supposed to like think about how how much you know they care about each other." And I was like, "No, I'm just annoyed." <laughs> yeah, I think I completely agree. And I love the way you, you phrase that because I was thinking that in the last few chapters, I'm like, "Wheel of Time, the, the Eye of the World suffers a lot from really leaning into the cliche of the chosen one hero from like especially early like the early '90s fantasy and all that." You have the, yeah. the cliche, like, uh, male hero, he's chosen, he, he's special, he's sometimes stubborn against it. Um, but then it's just, like, some of the tropes associated with that, with, like, just, like, kind of the, the staleness of his character in relation, his, like, interactions with women and everything are just very cliche. 
way. Uh, speaking of interactions with women, I did have to pose to everybody from a world building perspective, because this is, I feel like in, hmm, well, I'll, I'll just, okay. So Nynaeve says this thing <clears throat> she, when she mentions, I said, I marry as seldom as wisdoms. Few men can live with so much power in a wife, dimming, oh, them, yeah. by her, but dimming them by her radiance, whether she wishes to or not. And I'm like, okay, context of 1989, <laughs> 1989, 1990. This is obviously a real world dynamic, right? This yeah. is obviously true for a lot of men, a lot of men of this generation. We're still in the we're still in the 80s when Jordan is writing this. We're still in like there's a very limited description, a very limited bound of what like female empowerment can look like in Hollywood, for instance, with the you know the the the, the sort of uh, like shoulder pads wear, wearing. Um, often kind of cold and, sh you know, the Sharon Stone image of like what, what the, what the woman in charge or in power looks, looks like and how men are perceiving that, how writers are perceiving that, how society is at large. I did wonder, okay, but in terms of the context of this world, my first thought is this, like really? In thousands of years of men not being able to channel and of women being, you know, running the White Tower and being the dominant force in the world, in thousands of years, they haven't gotten used to it. And it's one thing where I could feel like, okay, maybe, I don't know, does it make sense that that is still the universal gender dynamic here? Would not by now enough people have gotten used to you think in all the wide world in all the nations that the, the white tower sees over and that where people come from and where they take people from and where warders come from that it's that hard to find men who uh whose masculinity is not so challenged by a powerful woman that they can't stand to be around her okay i've talked i've talked enough on this what do y'all think what what are what are the reactions <laughs> I mean, that's a powerful observation of just like the POV from the author, though, because I think the show, I didn't think about that, but that's a great point that like it really shouldn't work in the dynamic of this, like the society. I think the show cleans that up, though. Like, I don't get that sense at all from the show that men are frightened by women's power and place. It just comes from a very frail, masculine perspective of like women can't be more powerful in this relationship dynamic and the, i remember jotting that line down to the one you the the phrase you just quoted because it's like it's so cringy and so outdated uh but it's coming from jordan's perspective and kind of his lived experience in a society that's very controlled by men but i, I feel like the show has done a good job of cleaning that up because in reality you're right there's thousands of years of women being dominant and having more say in politics and power and everything men would respect them like they do in the show i think no one challenges the, the fact there's powerful women everywhere and that they often have authority authority over like what the men are doing. And I've just never seen anyone scoff at that in the show. I might be wrong about that, but I think that's something only specific to the book. Yeah, I think they've cut out a lot of that crap <laughs> from <laughs> from the show into the book because even a lot of the like dialogue between the group uh, is gone in the show. Like that whole thing with Egwene dancing with the grandson from mm, the Tinkers yeah. and Perrin being like, the fuck are you doing? Like all of that is gone. <laughs> so I think, you know, Thank God. Yeah, I'm I'm happy that that dynamic is fucking gone. Like, you know, that women or, you know, female presenting can do their own shit. Like, God forbid they be fucking human. And so I think I think in some context, though, it works because 
Nynaeve is from the Two Rivers. Well, that's where she grew up. Let's, let's say that yeah, we don't yeah. necessarily know. <laughs> She's from the Two Rivers, and that's where these these this group of teenagers are from. And so if we're seeing a lot of these like stereotypical dynamics play out, it's because they're, I would yeah. say, it's because they're from this very sheltered bullshit town <laughs> compared to, you know, everyone else. I think it also plays into why, you know, Katie, you said that um, you didn't like the fact that people up in Faldara are much more accepting of Aes Sedai and everything. Like, it just feels too different and i think it's it's just it's showing the dynamic that like you know if you're exposed to more shit more people look at your worldview changing compared to mm. the two rivers that even from the start i mean how many fucking backhanded comments did we get from the men about all of the women that they were like oh you know don't mess with my wife she's a firecracker and it's like yeah fuck off all of you a good point that the i like that perspective of them being sheltered um because it is maybe unfortunate or cool, depending on how you look at it, that the world that Jordan set up, like in the TV show, can really lend to being this like female empowered world. But I guess the unfortunate aspect is it doesn't really come off that way in the book. Um, but but like the the tenets of that are there because for so long the women have been the ones that can wield this massive power when whereas the men can't handle this power mm -hmm. um so it is really interesting to see like so many just like little sexist and like eye rolling comments slid into the book but then if you remove them you actually have a world in which female power is dominant so yeah I think that's that's basically hitting on the reason why it bugs me is because it's incompatible it, that it feels incongruous with the world yeah. building because throughout the series we'll see it's not just the Aes Sedai like that's been you know they like loads of these nations have ha have female rulers or have for generations and generations it's like it's not a new thing and it does and it seems like almost every almost everywhere there are exceptions and different countries and societies but even in the two rivers where we have the women it's gendered we have the women's council who runs the town and then we have the the men's council who uh who i don't know it's they even the men seem to acknowledge they don't really run the town but they like to gripe about it all all the time but it just feels like if that is the case and if in most of the world women have had the rights that in our world they've only had for you know 50 to 100 years in, in most societies or less uh you know in a lot of ways but here that that they've had them for so much longer in so many places and there have been women in power at all levels of societies in all these places for so long that's why it feels weird to me that there would still be the same and I, I guess I guess it's like you know Jordan in the '80s being like I've got to. I think he probably I get the sense that Jordan probably thinks that's good and that's the world that uh, that that that's how things ought to be in ter in terms of gender equity. I think he probably see. I don't know if he would. I I have no idea if he ever called himself a feminist. Uh, but I feel like that was probably from the '80s. He was he had was probably pro pro women being e e at least equal in in society is the general vibe i get but that he's a little a little too mired in in you know his time and his own framing of these issues to really think about whether people would still talk quite this way in, in the world that he's laid out and then maybe they would maybe there would still be i don't know i don't know it's kind of depressing to think that of uh, for instance misogyny would just be a, a universal human constant even in a world like that i guess it's an, an argument but uh, I don't know. I'm sure we'll return to this at, at various points, as we always have, too. <laughs> yeah, it's to the... fun because this, this conversation almost mimics one of our first we had with um, uh -huh. Katie telling us about the, I forget the the last man on Earth, or I forget the name of the, the show oh, yeah, that yeah. you're watching. Why, why that, the last man, yeah. 
Yeah, why the last man and just kind of like the the politics of there, like the violence that is ensues. We're also now speculating about like kind of gender politics and if that would still exist in a different society. So it's fun because it's all these things like would these happen? Like we were talking about post apocalypse and if violence would still kind of always ensue if like they try to restructure. And now we're talking about like in this environment, like this fantasy environment, would you still have like distorted gender politics if women had more power? But it seems that I don't know. Everyone views women very like they're especially the Aes Sedai. It's like I, I forgot how like the book compared to the show. Not as many people feel this way in the show, but in the book, they're like conniving. They're like back, like mm-hmm. you don't trust Aes Sedai. It's almost like this really bad metaphor for how men view women. That's like oh, they're oh. like they're like they'll, yeah. they'll lie to you or they'll take advantage and they have so much power and you don't trust them. You don't want them near. Like Rand is just hating on Aes Sedai the entire time. They don't trust them uh-huh. at all and they're just like scared. And I, even at the end of this book, I thought it would shift. But Moraine is always this cold-hearted person. Like, I find that she's kind of presented in a nasty sort of way in the last few chapters, especially the very last mm. one. He's like, she's not even engaging with me. And I was just like, Moraine, it, like, he can't, I don't know if he'll write it later on, but like, Jordan seems to be unable to write this strong and like stoic and kind of like conniving woman that also has tender spots or like the show does. Like, I love her portrayal on the show. She has soft spots and she's relatable, but here she yeah. always comes Which off again, as like this will, will come from her, uh, her own novel from a new spring, like that where, where most of that, where we see I'm from her perspective. Yeah, but we're not getting that. So we get this yeah. like fragile young guy who's just like so intimidated by this like really powerful woman. And he just, you, like, she's always so cynical and cold in here and she's so hard to relate to. Yeah, getting into chapter 49, this line that you're, you're obliquely hinting at, this line that comes up a bunch of times, I think, where Rand, this is, okay, Rand wondered if women had a way of reading men's minds. It was an unsettling thought. All women are eyes to die. And I, I, I was just okay. how much is this really wanting? Okay, this is where I started to think, oh, does Jordan want us to sympathize with Rand at this point? Or does he want us to think that Rand is slipping into, into this sort of increasingly paranoid and toxic mentality about you know all women and their intentions that he starts going into here sorry if we yeah. sorry to keep dra- dragging this particular topic on but i just realized well it continues into the next chapter in a more <laughs> intense way there in 49 the dark one stirs glad that i was definitely wondering if we were meant to feel in these last four chapters if rand was like going a little mad or or not. I honestly wasn't sure. So I, I mean, I don't think we maybe have an answer to that at the ending of this book. And that's just something we're left to wonder. But I certainly feel like the question was in my mind. Yeah, they both start getting really nasty towards each other, especially after each channel. So it's like, I mean, we can go into the description and talk about the other elements too. But yeah, I, I started to get a lot more of this tension. And a lot of it seems to be gender related between like Ran and him slipping a little bit. And then this coldness towards Moraine. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of hostility in the last like two or three chapters. I'm just like, oof. like it, it starts to get a little like dark between the way he's viewing her, but we don't get any of her headspace, but like they both get Mm-mm. really cold towards each other. So I think we'll do, okay. I mentioned, yeah, chapter 49, the dark one stirs. Keely, do you want to summarize this one for us? And then we'll, uh, we'll talk about this, this stuff on 49. And then I feel like I should probably just try to summarize the last three chapters altogether because they feel like one big chapter where a really convoluted events run together really quickly. Yeah. If that so, sounds good. Yeah. Um, chapter 49, the dark one stirs. So they, is this, I can't remember if this is the day after or then like if this chapter includes the night that they decide to stop. Um, and mm-hmm. The the blight is like no matter no matter what Moraine does to kind of protect them, the blight is still getting to them. Um, yeah, the, it surprises her. 
Yeah. And um, she's pretty adamant that she's going to be able to find the eye of the world um, because she has she's seen it before or she I don't remember if she's seen the green man or the eye of the world or both before. I think she's met the green man mm-hmm. before. Um, and she just keeps saying how like, oh, well, it'll appear if the need is great and our need is so great. At one point, she says like my need and then she quickly adjusts and says our yeah. need. Yeah. Um, and then they do end up encountering the green man and they talk to him and, and he's like, oh, you're back again. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone not looking forward to how they portray the green man in the show? I'm, I'm just I don't think they can nail how awesome he sounds. Maybe that's where all the budget went in these last two episodes. All <laughs> these monsters, fantastical creatures. Maybe that's where all the CGI is going to be, because we did read we did read that interview where, oh, yeah, they decided on this for loyal, apparently because they wanted him to be a huge part of the show all the time. and they, they couldn't afford every episode. So maybe we'll find out where all the CG uh, is gone. Crossed, yeah, I'm hoping they <laughs> held out for this because I imagine this awesome like ant like figure who's not human at all. I mean, he has human mm-hmm. features, but I don't see him as a human. And like he, I expect like vines and everything growing on him, and like this, like almost like and like face. All like hopefully all CG are really good prosthetics. But like if they give us a dude like gr- like painted green, mm-hmm. I'm gonna be so disappointed. <laughs> I'll be like, okay, we're done. I'm excited to see that as well. I there, I don't know if Caleb, you ever saw this person, but there is a long-standing person in Venice Beach, California, which is a quirky place. Uh, mm-hmm. that would dress up as the green man and he wore stilts and he was just magnificent in his portrayal. And he had like vines growing all over him and like a butterfly on his shoulder. And I would just see him every once in a while when I lived around there. Um, and Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at photos. That's you, really cool. And, I haven't seen it in person. And like, I hadn't read this book obviously. And I know the green man is kind of like a, it's more, it's kind of more in, in myth. So it may be not, was not directly related to this book, but I kind of think it was. Um, uh-huh. anyway, when I was reading it, I, I couldn't stop picturing him. And I honestly, like if the show can make the person look as cool as this guy that dressed up in Venice, I would be totally stoked. Yeah. <laughs> That is really neat. It looks like he walks around on stilts all the time. And it's, it, are these actual plants that, he, that that are attached to the costume? That would be a I really- I don't know, but it looked so real. And he was like, he also had like this really calming Zen voice and he would say hi to people. Like everything about him was great. <laughs> I kept picturing the green man as, I don't know if anyone has read, there's a novella called Silver in the Wood by Emily Tesh. And it's from a tour. It's one of their novellas. And the cover hmm. of it, has this depiction of the the man that lives in the woods but his face is made out of like tree branches and shit and that's what i was picturing Mm, him as like the whole environment that she made in that story and like the atmosphere i was imagining that for this character so i think i'm kind of with dan that i am ready to be very very disappointed (laughs) adjusted expectations we're very excited. Also, so it's like if you yeah. if we go in with super low expectations after Loyal, which I understand they wanted to reduce or save the budget since he's a very common cast member. But like if they can't do that for this character, we're just going to be like, really, guys? I also think of those. Um, I, the thing where I went to mind this time, especially with like his, his fingers are acorns and he has fruits growing off. Um, some of those famous paintings by like, <sighs> is it a Giuseppe um, Archimboldo of, of humans made entirely of, of vegetable matter, like a, as a still life kind of thing where every every little detail is some part of a plant. But yeah, I guess we'll, we'll see how they pull off on the production design level. I feel like that's where the show's been the most mixed bag. We'll also see, do you th- are we going to get all these monsters? Are we going to get the, the, the uh, 
Cthulhu-like creature in the lake, the Watcher in the water, or the giant worms. We get our we get our Dune uh, flavor moment here of these huge burrowing worms that are, I guess, they're above ground. Maybe <laughs> unlike unlike Dune, they're like bringing down trees as they're coming through. Although conveniently, a lot of the fights happen off screen because land is like going and <laughs> land disappears. We hear like horrible noises and like s- splashes and streaks of blood, and he comes back covered in black blood like five minutes later or wiping off his blade and like don't worry about it and and moraine telling them don't worry just let land do his thing that felt kind of weird to me that land would like disappear and then come back and they'd be like oh no it's fucking fine like we're not going to talk about this at all because land from what they told us is kind of from this part of the world so he would have the most knowledge which is probably why he's comfortable like going out and fighting whatever and coming back and then they just kind of like hint at other things happening. Like they say mm. worms, but you don't actually get a description of them. That's like really graphic. You just kind of see like the trees are moving and all, everything is scared of them. Um, and then they keep saying like, oh, there are worse things living in the high passes, but they don't say what that is. They don't talk about it. So I feel like they were kind we of. Do, we do see a tree eat something, right? Like a tree eats like a large animal, a bear or something. Yeah, but that was it's, pretty- it's just like someone sees it in the distance. Like they don't talk yeah, about yeah. it. They don't give it all these crazy fantasy names and so i felt kind of like (laughs) let down with that that like they did so much description of the blight and specific things and felt like they were really going for it and then they're just like we're just gonna hint at other stuff but we're not gonna talk about it it's like that shit is the coolest part of this fucking book so far talk (laughs) about it more yeah he he ran out of time it's like we'll we'll give you a little like flavor here and there and just like some dune worms but it's like he's like i'm running out of time to write this book it's like here's like the final like stretch of things it's like i spent so long describing 20 ins (laughs) now like Uh, when you get the fantastical (laughs) creature it's like we'll just hint at that for now Okay, so this feels like the place where four chapters left, but they are all really one enormous chapter and then a brief epilogue. Uh, so I'm going to try to describe the next three <laughs> as, as succinctly as I can. Chapter 50, Meetings at the Eye, then chapter 51, Against the Shadow, and chapter 52, There is Neither Beginning Nor End. And a hell of a lot happens. <laughs> so... Moraine leads the party. Finally, we're like fleeing from the worms and it seems like they're about to get on us. We're all going to die. There is no way we can fight these things. Like Matt's get knocking arrows and lands like, don't even bother. They won't even feel arrows. You don't understand how big these things are that are coming for us. And we get glimpses of them, but that's when they arrive. Their need gets big enough. They, they arrive into suddenly this, this, you know, protected enchanted glade. It feels like that um, you know, serene fairy glade things uh, where where they meet the uh, the green one, as we talk about, welcomes everybody. He's catching up with them all, catching up with loyal uh, tree brother, getting all this. And of course, we get the moment of the uh, the the, tr- the green man identifies Ran as an Aiel. But once again, Ran is completely oblivious about it. He's like, oh, child of uh, one of one of the children of the dragon. And it's so, it's so strange that you touch a sword, though. The, uh, the Aiel don't use swords there you know uh, all, all that stuff then rand of course being as insistent as ever that he's definitely not an ayo monk um but uh after this brief discussion of the situation moraine leads them in down into a hill where they find the eye of the world it is a pool of untainted cyadine it's like pure reservoir this 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 huge collection and it, it looks kind of like water but not like water doesn't really ripple or react um leading down into these dark depths that um 
the Aes Sedai of the Age of Legends right after the breaking happened, or, or sorry, right as the breaking was starting, right after the Dark One was sealed away, they're like, oh shit, Syedine's tainted. We all need to work together. A hundred Aes Sedai, so 50 women, 50 men, work together to create this pool of Syedine that is filtered and untouched by the Dark One, and it kills them all to do it. They sort of used, I guess, their own bodies as a buffer against the taint to fill this reserve of power that can be used to one day seal the Dark One back in because now that Syedine is corrupted, they won't be able to do that again because the, the Dark One's own power touches the male half uh, of um, of the One Power, which would keep them from ever using it to bind him back again. So this is the failsafe against that. But the moment they find it practically too... Um, husk looking like corpse like figures like so old they're basically one of them uh agonor looks like he is uh a desiccated he's so old he looks like a desiccated corpse i'm picturing the end of uh indiana jones 3 uh the uh the last last crusade of of you know dude chose poorly drank from the wrong cup then his body's like immediately doing that aging thing and uh balthamel who is so decayed that he wears this creepy mask uh, that he can't see it. They're both forsaken. They were bound in Shio, at Shiogul with the Dark One. Apparently, they were bound so close to the surface uh, that they were like caught in between his prison and the surface world. And as a result, for 3,000 years, they have been in stasis but aging, like exposed to time and uh, really a terrifying fate uh, where they seem to be aware of the passage of time and their bodies decaying, but they were trapped there and unable to do anything about it. Um, things get chaotic really quickly. Moraine, even with her Angriol, that that um, that figure she has that enhances uh, her ability and the one power dramatically, she knows she's no match for two Forsaken. Uh, so she tries to uh, keep the others from fighting, but they ignore they ignore her. Everything goes to hell really quickly. Uh, the um, the is it? It's either Balthamel or Algonor. They're like uh, like Egwene tries to attack and is th- or, or thrown back, or, or Nynaeve tries to, tries to attack. It's grabbed by. Um, by one of them. The green man attacks and um, takes Balthamel by surprise. Balthamel thinks he's killed the green man with this, like, like burst him into flames. Uh, but then the green man sort of in his dying throes grabs Balthamel and gruesomely kills him by, like, growing him from the inside out full of fungus and plants. Moraine buys time for others to flee. She's screaming in the background as Ran runs, pursued by Agonor. And uh, after after the Forsaken finishes, it sounds like torturing Moraine back there all really awful and seems like it's going very badly. But then they reach the edge of this cliff and uh, and Agonor, Rand is suddenly able to see, is tethered by like this glowing cord to the eye of the world and drawing on this massive reservoir of Syedin, which, oh no, oh, shocking, Rand is suddenly able to see. And they they fight over it kind of in this mental way with neither of them are moving, their bodies, neither of their bodies are moving, but um, Agonor is trying to draw in the entirety of it um, as, as Rand starts to try and grab the Eye of the World as well. And it seems like what happens is Agonor grabs all, tries to grab the entirety of the Eye at once. And even he, even one of the Forsaken, cannot contain all this power, bursts into flames, self-immolates by, try, by burning out, trying to draw too much of the power in a very literal sense. Uh, but Rand is able to hold it. Uh, like a lot of it has been drained already in this fight. Rand is able to hold what's left he not like it seems instinctual uh, something takes him over maybe this personality that we have seen sort of grabbing onto rand at various points throughout the book he teleports to the battle at tarwin's gap where you know where 
Um, the, the Faldara forces are in the midst of this gruesome battle trying to hold the pass against the Trollocs and the Fades and all these shadows spawn like like this whole swarm of drag car flying above. Rand incinerates them, uh, doesn't know how he's doing it, calling down like, like beams of light from the sky, burning things apart um, and destroying the army of shadow spawn. Then is still driven by this instinct. He hunts down Baalzaman across the world uh, into the familiar rooms where um, where Luz Theron killed his family. We saw at the beginning of the novel and the prologue. He manages to uh, somehow creates the sword of light, like composed maybe purely of the power drawn from the eye of the world, severs Baalzaman from this cord of dark power attaching him to somewhere this like pure blackness with the sword of light uh defeats balsamon whose body is apparently destroyed blown up uh crumbles to ash after Rand slices him off cuts him off from whatever this 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 blackness is returns to the grove uh after recovering from unconscious seems like Rand teleports back uh, finds his friends injured but alive, realizes what he's done, swears never never to channel again, tells Moraine that he won't be used as a false dragon, and he's getting really aggressive about it and really, like, realizing he's going to face Loghain's same fate or, or Rowland Darkspain or all these other figures because Balsamon rattles off all these names of, like, he's like, yeah, this wasn't an accident. The, the, the White Tower is using all of these false dragons for their own purposes and all their own end and all these previous incarnations who are maybe not quite false dragons. They're all this pattern is playing itself out over and over again. And then the party where the eye of the world was all that reservoir is drained away. All the power is gone. The stone is burned away, but there is a perfectly intact box at the bottom containing the dragon's own banner with an actual golden dragon on it, like a, like an Asian style uh, dragon there. The fabled horn of Valer uh, is here or Valier and one of the seven seals First time we know about these of the Dark One's prison, which is broken. It's made of hearthstone quendalar, uh, which is supposed to be this unbreakable substance created with the one power in the Age of Legends. And that seven of them were used to contain the Dark One. And one of them has somehow been destroyed in the course of all this. No one is as confident as Rand that the Dark One has been defeated. Rand even names him. He's like Shaitan and Rand's like, you know, whatever happened, whatever you think went down. Uh, we're still in the blight. Basically, it's it's encroaching in. It's already destroying the green man's garden. Don't don't say. Just use dark. Use the dark one or use Balsamon if if you have to, uh, because this is not over yet. Obviously, from Moraine's perspective. So that that's fifty to fifty two. Uh, we could talk about fifty three at the end. The the epilogue. Okay, <laughs> hell of a lot. Well, what do we think? I did not like a lot of it, <laughs> just because of how fast it went. Um, it, the whole thing with Rand made no fucking sense to me. And I, I messaged right after I finished it and I was like, was that a dream sequence? Was that supposed to be real? <laughs> what the fuck is happening? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they, he introduced, uh, the, the two Forsaken. Now I thought that the Forsaken were Aes Sedai that went to the Dark One. Is that different? Are they not the Black Aja? Black Aja? They are the original 13 of the most powerful, the 13 most powerful Aes Sedai other okay. than Luz Theron who went to the Dark One. Uh, and they were the, and there have been others. There were others who joined during the War of the Shadow. Those were the Dread Lords who command the armies of Fades and Trollocs. And then there are the the third and lowest tier of the Dark Ones channelers are the are the Black Aja, who are the ones today still, according to Balzaman, alive and doing his purposes within the White Tower itself. 
Okay, because that kind of confused me because I thought that the Forsaken were the female Aes Sedai that went to the Dark One. Um, but knowing that there's kind of like a higher... Okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's just those... Oh, I'm totally blanking on their name. The the Nazgul. The only thing that like really stood out to me here that I was like, oh, I'd like to know more about that <laughs> um, <laughs> was I fucking love Loyal doing he like prays or he does tree songs mm. tree songs for yep. the green man to like make sure that the blight can't get him and i was like oh sweet baby boy loyal i love you that was so <laughs> sweet because i was so bummed that the green man got killed that they also say that the green man was placed like he was chosen to be the guardian mm-hmm. of the eye that that wasn't his original purpose but that they never say what his original purpose was and so i need a novella mm. on the green man <laughs> along with my novella <laughs> on land um and i didn't i didn't love moraine at all in this whole thing Mm. that rand could like hear her screaming and it's so dramatic as she's fighting one of the forsaken and holding him back and then afterwards she's just like being carried on a cot like so fucking tired and like but still sassy and kind of annoying so i don't like book moraine Mm -hmm. it didn't make sense to me what was happening to her it just felt fucking dramatic um, I just, I would have enjoyed this so much more if it just wasn't rushed. It just felt so fucking rushed to get all of yeah. these things happening. I really mixed on it because there's things I really liked about these chapters and things I really didn't like. So it started to get very polarizing for me. Um, mm. did like the prayer that Loyal, um, did at the end. Um, I thought that was like nice. And I kind of like, he's like, he's not truly gone. He still has some power here because like he's holding back the blight. Uh, and I can feel like he's like, I don't have power to get like these. I think there's like plants or flowers that grow on him. He's like, I couldn't have done that. So there's clearly still some power left. So I thought that was like a nice, like loyal moment. Yeah. Just enough to save the oak, basically, but not, none of the rest of the garden. The oak yeah. that is sort of like the head, the headstone for the green man. Yeah, I thought that was, that was great. I love going back to like the the battle. I really like the these two forsaken characters coming out. Um, it felt too last game, like last end game kind of moment, bringing them out so late. It's like hmm. we've had these faceless Nazgul like fades the entire time, but. Like Trollocs are kind of a dime dime a dozen, and we've only really had the Dark One as like an antagonist so far. And it would have been nice to see some more of these characters introduced earlier and fleshed out because they give like they give an, a face and a personality to what's been just like faceless fades that mm-hmm. like literally are just like teeth and screeching and everything. So it's like, and I feel the boat book and show the the show has no reason for this though they have no excuse because they've had all this material to work with they could have easily introduced them earlier if anything they're going more faceless than the books do with like Beelzebub literally just being like a fire yeah those are really cool all the dream sequences and like him getting closer is like almost like a game of chess between him and like the kids and like Moraine I don't know why they're missing that it's like the the villain and the the antagonist in the show is just non-existent it's very it's it's such a loss that didn't have to happen the the books bringing these two forsaken characters I love the idea idea of like the dark lord having like a band of like his most sinister like allies i thought they're cool that they have like unique features to them i like ones like a decrepit character and i really latched onto like the masked um Bathamon or Bathamel. Um, mm-hmm. I thought that was an interesting. I like how they're kind of distinct. They're their own characters. They bring them in. They're kind of scary that they're like more powerful than Moraine, and she's actually worried. So I thought that was really cool. I was like, oh shit, we're finally getting some villains that Moraine's like can't really stand up against. They're out of her league. Their appearance was like threatening and like interesting. And then they get chased and they have this cool. Mm-hmm. I kind of liked the battle moment. I thought, 
kind of different. I, I think I disagree with Keely on that. I personally liked it, but I can totally see it felt like a dream sequence or out of place. But like, I, I it almost felt like the Avatar stayed in Last Airbender, and we knew mm, that Rain yeah. was Rain had had no development before this, so the only way he could fight a character <laughs> was to have like a dreamlike state or like almost yeah uh, something has to take him over because yeah, he, he doesn't know what's happening yeah. here. And he still doesn't by the end of it. So he's, he's still kind of swept along with it. So I knew it was going to be this like energy force where it's like, yeah, like the glowing eyes or like the dreamlike state where he gets the power, but he's so novice to it. He can't control it or anything. It kind of just like sweeps him along and has that sequence. Cause like they always do that with the, it's such a like a staple now with chosen one characters that almost the first time they engage with the power, they're super powerful, but they have no idea how they're using it and everything. So it's like Harry Potter and all that, like the power of like the love curse. He doesn't really do anything in the final act in the first book. So like with the philosopher's stone and everything, he just like burns Voldemort um, with like this power outside of him. So it's like, they almost always have this in the first novel. So like I kind of expected it just from like, he's not going to be doing things on his own. But I like the description of like the light Sh- touching Sh- him. Shadow and bone too this year. Same thing with, with her. Oh, was her it? Awake, her, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's such a staple. It's like sort of a cliche, um, but it works sometimes and doesn't other times. But yeah, it's, it, it is a cliche or like a trope of, of fantasy chosen one novels and shows. But I did like the way they described the light and him seeing it and touching it. And like, there's like the way it made him feel and everything. I thought that was like something you can't get with just like visuals in a show sometimes or like seeing the light and everything. Like the way like he touches the light or the way it takes over and, and his void, the, the relationship between the void, which they've been building up in the mm. book. That they right, haven't touched yeah. on in the show. I thought that was interesting. He's like learning. That's the only thing he really got from Lan was like learning that like mm-hmm. the void state, like the meditation state. And then that see, like the light seeping in and seeing like the negative light or kind of like the tainted light from other characters. And like he almost can see this thing that like you can't see on the surface level. And he like finally has that like x-ray vision. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that the light feels like its own entity. Um, I was telling Josh this with the with the Jedi versus like the Aes Sedai and the, the way the light works. I almost feel like the way the pattern operates and kind of like the wheel weaves mm. feels more like its own character. Whereas the force feels more like a mechanism for moving things. Even though they talk about like the force as like this dynamic thing that flows throughout, mm-hmm. it often doesn't feel like its own living character. Whereas like I've always felt that way with like the way Jordan writes the wheel and like it feels like an entity that's moving and you're just dipping your hand into it and like touching it, mm. but it's its own thing and it's not you necessarily doing it. You have a power to like interact with it and use it, but it's not you doing it per se. And I thought this you're was like a, a really conduit. Great, yeah, you're a conduit. And I thought this was a great way of summarizing all that he had built up for. Uh, and then, yeah, I think, yeah, that's pretty much how I thought about it. And then I, I feel like it did rush a little bit too much. I really hate it when he ends that state and comes back down and they're all just chilling like, oh, hey, Rand, like you were just fighting this extremely <laughs> powerful character. It's like, oh, they went to He's go. He's been gone for a while, blood. right? Yeah. They're the shitty players in a video, like when you're playing co-op video game <laughs> who go for the loot before actually killing the main boss. And they're like, oh, they're collecting the treasure <laughs> at the end of this D&D quest while you just got back from like slaying like the final boss. I'm like, it's such a shitty conclusion. I'm like, really? They're going to be those people? Like... Like, Rain doesn't get anything. They're, like, bringing it out. They're like, here's the treasure chest we got. It's, like, it felt very cliche D&D at that point. I was like, okay, I really don't like how this wrapped up. <laughs> Marine's like, like, to Keely's point, Marine's just like, hi, I'm fine. I'm kind of, like, my, my pride's gotten hurt. But, like, I'm I'm okay. And it's like, I can heal myself. Or I'm like, it's not too bad. 
And then like, I didn't even get what happened. I'm like, where did they all go when they scattered? They all just kind of stayed together and ran, went off and they were just like collecting loot while he was fighting this thing. Like I thought they'd be up on the mountain with him or wondering what happened or where the, this dude was. Cause they, it literally was the biggest threat they've faced so far. And it gets resolved really fast. And no one seems very upset by that. They're literally trying to go down to the bottom of this like clear mm-hmm. lake or whatever and get the treasure. So it just felt such a jarring conclusion to like kind of that finale. Mm. That's, that's pretty much my thoughts on it. I, like mixed such a lame ending. I I feel similarly. Um, I I I was waiting, and I guess this is just what I made up in my head. But I was waiting for this moment where Rand gets to like use the one power to save his friends and save the day, mm-hmm. and they're all like there, you know, cheering him on, and they they can see that he is the dragon because they. I mean, it's obvious that that's what this has all been about the whole time. All of them are aware that one of them was potentially the dragon and that's why they were going here. Um, But it seems almost like that gets forgotten in this ending. And that was my Mm. like main disappointment. So the, the teleportation, I was like, Oh really? I, I mean, I liked the dream like quality in some sense. And I kind of like how, when it wraps up and we get the soldier's perspective on what happened and they just, kind of saw this glowing man and it was like that magically saved them. That was kind of cool on the other side of it. But, but as like the climax of this book, I just really wanted Rand to save his friends and save the day and for them all to be there in the moment that he kind of defeats this evil because they've all really equally been fighting this evil and and Mm -hmm. impacted by it. And even like, you know, Perrin and Matt had the dreams too. And it just didn't seem right to me that that he went off on his own, like Dan was saying, and they're kind of just treasure hunting. Um, <laughs> and, and then I, I guess my, my last like complaint, and, and there were really good things about this too, but, but to get my last complaint out of the way, like um, how could Matt and Perrin not get it that he was the dragon reborn? Like, how is that even yeah. something that could possibly be hidden from them? They have been on this quest together and they're fully mm-hmm. aware what's going on. And so it just seemed really ridiculous to me that Moraine and Rand and any of them would even pretend that they could hide from Matt and Perrin what had happened. And like Rand doesn't get to have his heroic moment in essence, because they don't all know about it. Well, but they, they don't see him channel ever, right? As far as they know, and he and he runs off when all this happens. But if it wasn't them, then who was it? Yeah, it's like, they know they've <laughs> yeah, been literally, they've been building up for this right, release. Yeah. To Katie's point, why yeah, are they trying process to hide of it? Elimination. Like, well, yeah, yeah. They, I mean, the, and the show has been building this further. And I like the dynamic of Rand is not sure if he wants, even if one of them is revealed, they're all worried that it means they're going to get, um, uh, what's it called, gentled by the, yeah. the Aes Sedai. Yeah, so Matt, they're all Matt starting, and Rand have a suicide pact. Yeah, they're all worried about that now. So I get that they'd be a little like scared about it, but like hiding it from them, to Katie's point, I don't understand why you even beat around the bush because it's clear that even if you don't want to make it a victorious moment, it's clear who it is. Because especially if you're going to disband and like Maureen's just like, I had no, like it almost, Rand was just like, he, he gets the vibe. She's like, I have no more use for you. You can go do whatever you want now. Like you accomplish your task. <laughs> it was so cold hearted. I was just like, oh, she's really buying into like what they were, like the assumptions they were making about her. But just, yeah, I don't understand to Katie's point at all. Just like, so why well, are they okay. hiding it? <laughs> two two things on, on the Moraine appearing cold hearted here thing. I'll just say I think it's instructive to keep in mind this last episode of the TV show and Swan's public performance with Moraine 
versus the purpose that they're actually serving by it with the prophecies that they are working to fulfill and to set in place. And the show is probably doing the smart thing of letting us into Moraine so much more and letting us see what she is working on, like giving us she if any you know if anything like all her emotions laid bare and raw. We know what she is working towards, and we know that she often has to do a public performance because she's playing this chess game with Swan that they have running together to try and save the world. Um, so I suspect things will happen with that differently in the show too. In the last couple episodes, maybe we'll get a lot more of of Moraine's perspective and yeah from what you're saying katie from an economy of storytelling perspective it's like yeah why why teleport randolph to save a bunch of other people who we barely know uh it, granted it's a battle so you get that whole epic battle scene but like you said he could just save his friends in that dramatic way and have this be the reveal moment that jordan is clearly trying to hold off on to till later but do you think maybe i wonder the vision you've built up in your head if that will be what the show does not tomorrow but next week with the finale given how much they've set of, because they've reversed it where Moraine's been like, oh, you know, she's not telling them that that Swan and her believe all that the four non-dragon reborns will all die in this finale. So maybe they're setting it up to something Keeley hinted at on the on uh, the talk with Nick about maybe they will all link in some way. Maybe they will all uh, like uh, do, I don't know. It does feel like it would make way more sense for 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 Rand to save the others, or for all of them to save each other. All of the these powers that they are awakening to, except for Matt, because he's not gonna be there in in the show. And maybe that's okay because he does nothing in the book anyway. And Matt has almost no role other than to make uh, commentary. And you know, it, it's not always the worst commentary in these last couple chapters. But he does nothing uh, that I can think of in in these final sequences uh, so be, uh, that yeah. commentary just to challenge that a little bit i was laughing hysterically when okay. i thought it was like <laughs> yeah. a typo or something every time they reveal a piece of loot he literally says burn me like every time he's like burn me burn me i'm like are you like ron weasley like on like looping like you're just like burn me matt breathe burn me matt said faintly it's like how many t- okay we get your reaction is gonna be he's like so one-dimensional that he's really like, you just, I don't know. I was like, what is going on with your character right now? I thought it was like a broken, like yeah. a, just a typo or something. I'm like, no, he's literally just repeating this like phrase every time they open something. I'm like, okay, Matt, stop. We, He'll we be good. Reaction. I promise. Once we get Matt perspective chapters, he's going to be, so he's going to be a fun character. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure I remember him being great. Eventually I remember like, you know, like I said, Nynaeve becomes my favorite character. And I think the show is going to pull in a lot of yeah, I mean, I like Matt in the show. Just the book version, just like jokey yeah. guy who's like literally like, oh, burn me. Like, just yeah. doesn't do anything. It's like, oh, he's so cringy. So I have three questions. <laughs> um, so there's this whole buildup of, you know, we have to take you to do this final fight with, you know, in the blight against the Dark One, all of that. What the hell were Egwene and Nynaeve supposed to do in that fight? Because the boys all have a weapon. And mm-hmm. when they're like going through the blight is when we really get to see them actually fighting back and using like at one point Matt shoots an arrow and it like fucking nails the thing that was coming Mm -hmm. through the woods and then you know they talk about Perrin with his axe and like you know they're all fighting but at no point besides like that one beginning uh, section do they ever show Moraine teaching Nynaeve or Egwene how to use the power like she just keeps saying like oh you have to be trained you have to do this like she even says Mm -hmm. that something similar in the blight so what the fuck were they supposed to do this whole time like she i feel like she was taking them as kind of sacrifices completely unprepared into this giant fight scene um so i thought that was that was kind of like a giant blank spot (laughs) like when you get finally to the fight did you notice the one moment where 
Rand comments on Egwene like trying to use the one power, but it's like just she like he describes it in like a really condescending way. Like she tried, but there was hardly any power there, and it was just this tiny dwindling effort. Which I also yeah, that to just mm -hmm. to your point reminded me of that. Yeah, and, and Nynaeve uses a knife to attack like the most power, like one of the most powerful like dark beings. It's like she doesn't even bother channeling like in the show where uh, Egwene is like trying to use like fireballs and stuff. So like, mm -hmm. yeah, so that that just felt like another super rushed. Like, why was there seven hundred pages of build up for that, and then they didn't do shit? Mm -hmm. Um, and then also, so the the two Forsaken show up and they're like, how the fuck did you find us? And one of them points at Matt and says, we fucking followed him. And then mm -hmm. that's it. Did they follow him because he had the dagger from Shadar Logoth? Did they follow him because yeah. of, like, well, there's they, no. They, they say that they followed the, this evil, this other evil that they knew and remembered. Sometimes a friend, usually an enemy. They, they do. They do say it was the dagger that. Okay. So that it drew was the dagger. But then there. that's it. Uh -huh. Like, there's no conversation after that. And that just kind of like takes a step back like, oh, shit. And then they never talk about it again mm -hmm. um and then i wasn't super clear towards the end are we supposed to assume that rand actually is the dragon reborn like is that what we're supposed to think because i felt that was vague as shit uh, yes it was wasn't it awfully vague um especially in the way that one of the you know one of the things in the epilogue um in chapter 53 the wheel turns is where moraine is like eavesdropping mm -hmm. on Egwene bidding farewell to rand and she says to herself she proclaims herself like the, that the true dragon has been reborn. But yeah, it does feel like this is the for for once Jordan is doing the show thing of being a little ambiguous here on that on that subject. Wait, is he though? Because I, I thought he was being very over the top, like hitting on the head with it. They even the green man talks about a dragon and he's he's talking to Rand. So I was like, okay, he's marking oh, no, the no. dragon. He's saying children of the dragon. He's that's an Iheel thing. He's talking about and about how like it's strange that he has a sword and all that, but because the ideal that is confusing. Oh, but he, but he, I but he's talk, that, is that as him yeah, just being like, yeah. hey, you're the dragon? I was like, wow, they just like no, dropped that no. so like like just no. Okay, like it wasn't like yeah. climatic at all. I know it's it's it is weirdly confusing the way he does it, but that's meant to be exactly like when when Loyal sees Rand for the first time and is like an an Ayuman here in Camelin and and bearing a sword, so strange and and all that. It's it's another one of those scenes again. Yeah, okay. There. But did you notice also with that scene that Matt is not included? I wrote down the names like uh, the green man mm. calls loyal little brother, tree brother. Perrin is called wolf brother. Rand is called mm -hmm. child of the dragon. No mention of Matt. Because he doesn't have anything right now. But like, why did <laughs> like it just it felt weird that like, you know, if all of them are supposed to be Taverin or whatever, why did he single out those ones and no one else? Mm. So was it Matt? Matt does get some moniker attached to him maybe not by the tree one i forgot to i don't see well, they have the, they do the the, the token things and i like that the visual like yeah. they have the dream sequence when they're in camelon right before they use the 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 ways they each have like a representation like a wolf uh mm -hmm. what was the other one like a a dagger or yeah rand has the sword representation his little token or like a little statue and then i think one of them's like a knife or something like the visual uh so they get like markers but yeah the green man doesn't make a reference mm -hmm. to that at all yeah again interesting what he what his role is even here uh besides well i guess he has to be here to lead the uh forsaken to something uh something you were saying a, a, mo a moment oh another another thing related to what you were saying katie what everybody was saying to some extent that may have of feeling first draft itis of this finale and the rush thing here. And oh, and then the what, um, Keely, you were saying about the what uh, Egwene and Nynaeve are even doing here and why Moraine has brought them in in this un unprepared state. 
I think I feel like this is some also something the show can easily fix and that Jordan is hinting at here. And I feel it feels like he wrote in clues about a thing that he forgot to fully include. Moraine has this kind of mystery moment twice where she's like, yeah, I have no idea how I was able to hold back Aganor as long as I did. Even even with the Angriol, I should not have been able to hold my ground against him at all. He's like basically we we see this field around Agnor that as he walks just incinerates everything like stone it disintegrates and we get the sense of these forsaken being so powerful no one should have a chance. No no I said I today and Moraine is surprised by that. I feel like what is going on here or that at some like that at the last minute this is pure speculation. I th- I get the sense that Jordan kind of wrote in uh, oh maybe Egwene and Nynaeve were secretly linking with Moraine here in that moment and sharing their power with her somehow and that she is able to stand against Agenor even even for a minute and to hold back his attacks here. And that seems like an obvious thing that the show can just build on and bring here, right? That that even if they can't channel on their own safely, that if they instinctively or Moraine teaches them in a moment of, of extreme danger, like, you know, reach out to her and link like they did when, because that's something the show has brought in and shown us already, linking in to stand against um Loghain, when they all gave, when all the Aes Sedai after Nynaeve healed them gave uh, Leandrin their collective power uh, to channel through her. So maybe that's what happens or that I feel like this is the sort of thing that I'm wondering, okay, is in Great Hunt, is this going to be retconned in that that's actually what happened here that that Jordan sort of put in two lines about right before it went to the publisher's hand or something to Moraine insert mystery why Moraine is able to do this? <laughs> well, and he kind of already did that a little bit because when they're talking about Rand, is it Moraine talking to Lan or she's talking to someone and she, she references back to like very early on when she's kind of like healing the horses that she yes, didn't have to right, do right, anything right. to Bella and so then they say like oh well who was riding mm-hmm. Bella Egwene who Rand is obsessed with and so clearly he somehow you know used whatever to to protect them because um, mm-hmm. they even say like so like they were surprised that Bella could keep up and seem to have extra energy and Moraine was like not me I didn't fucking do it <laughs> mm-hmm. to Keely's point though so Algamar when they're or Aldemar, I forget how his name's pronounced, even talks. It was interesting because he's like, Why are you bringing these like scrawny little boys? But he he completely understands why she's bringing like mm. the women because he's like, Well, they he well, he makes the assumption they're Aes Sedai, so that's what I kind of chalked it up to be. But like, he kind of gave a, an easy rationale for like why she would bring them, but she he couldn't understand like the three men. He's like, These guys are scrawny, they don't they're not bad already. Like, I can give you better men to replace them. He never mm-hmm. questions the women because I don't know, is that just because he's assuming they're Aes Sedai, like traveling with Marine? Even though they're not dressed like I said, I at all, he's just making the assumption that these women are channelers and that's why she's bringing them along. I think so. Uh, yeah, I really, it, I would have liked if it was written in that, that the three, like I, I kind of wanted them all to just serve a bigger purpose in this ending mm-hmm. battle. Like even to see Perrin use his wolf ability in some way here would have been cool. Like, it, I don't know. I think there was like, there was a really good setup and then it almost feel like it didn't fully come to fruition uh, or something like that. Um, I did really like uh, the kind of, um, I don't know, the ending was troubling and I liked that. Like I felt for Rand at the end because he just did Mm. this heroic thing and basically like saved the world, but he doesn't even get to feel good about it because there's so much like negativity that goes along with being able to channel as a male and there's so much history there. Um, so I thought that that was compelling and kind of brought like a depth to his character there and also just made the ending like uneasy, which is good to, to propel us into the next book. 
Um, but I, I was wondering, you know, at the end, he seems to like fully write off using the one power because he doesn't want to, you know, be gentled by the Aes Sedai and he doesn't want to fall into these losing horror, his mind. Yeah, losing <laughs> his mind and doing something detrimental to the world. So he's like really, of course, burdened by what has just happened to him. But what about like uh, the, the magnificence of using it? Like I didn't feel mm. like he was... Like it would have been more interesting if there had also been a couple lines where he like reflected on like the ecstasy of wielding the one power, which I feel like the show kind of gives us um, that like the hmm. reason that the gentled men, you know, kill themselves or are so desolate and want to die is because using the power was so amazing and they're like connected to it and bound to it. And so I thought it was interesting that we didn't really feel that very much from Rand, more just him like turning away from it because of the problematic nature. And that's another thing where the show's probably given us more emotional setup for that in that Rand has actually seen Loghain post uh, being severed from it in yeah. the show. And that, that scene where he is just, you know, in a state of suicidal depression. And we've had Rand thinking that was happening to Matt for yeah. episodes yeah. on end, which was, so there's so much more groundwork laid there for this moment of Rand kind of going off as a Ronin, it seems sort sort of at the end there to, we don't really know where he's going. He actually, I thought it was funny. He sort of lists like every character's quest log or like the next time on for the sequel. He's like, yeah. uh, or, or, or Egwene does where Moraine is still not completely well ran. I have to go to Tarvalon for my training. Nynaeve is coming too. Matt still needs to be healed of whatever capital W binds him to that dagger. Perrin wants to go see Tarvalon before he goes wherever. You could come with us. And, and Rand's like, uh, no, I'm just going to. Well, he, he, he does feel this moment of like real gratefulness and affection that she doesn't hesitate when... Um, when he asks her if he wants, if he wants, if she wants him to wind up gentle, and she's like, "No, of course, of course not." Like, of course, like they're, you know, she, the, she. There's sort of a moment with Nynaeve where it feels like Nynaeve is suddenly being like viewing Rand as this dangerous other and no longer as one of her two rivers kids, which I don't know that I liked, and I don't know that is compatible with show Nynaeve. And that's really great scene we had with her and Rand and City with with Matt, where she thought that he could channel when Rand told her, and she's like, "No, of course we're we're together. We're two rivers folks. Yeah. Like you're my you're my family." And I feel like that comes through with Egwene here, uh, and will probably come through much more with all of them in the show. All the things that that y'all were talking about in terms of really wanting it to feel more of the group and more of like where they have come and who they are and, and what they mean to each other coming through in the ending to be more emotional as opposed to just Rand running off on his own for the fight and now at the end running off on his own in a more literal sense, uh, which will, have, you know, that that feels more, it feels more meaningful if he's walk, going off alone after we have seen what they can do together and, and who they are together and that they are willing to accept him even if the world does not at this point. But that didn't make any fucking sense to me. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, so Moraine says, don't fucking say the Dark One's name because we don't actually know that he's dead. Mm -hmm. One of you might be the fucking dragon who needs to fight the Mm -hmm. Dark One. Turns out Rand may or may not be the dragon and he expects to just leave. Yeah, it it doesn't work. Does that make sense at all that Moraine would know that he can channel and be Mm -hmm. like, ah, fuck it. You can leave. Like, are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) Like, that doesn't make any sense. None of that makes sense that they would actually let him just like fuck off. Like, well, unless, unless she has some kind of way of, like, yeah. 
whatever. But so like clearly they were setting it up for the next book because, you know, they want to take the horn to Ilian or however you say it. Oh, they yep, have things yep. to do in Tarvalon. They need the, the people to go with them. And then they kind of say, or at least I got the impression that like, was the eye created actually as a way to, you know, harm the, the Dark One or whatever? Or was it to protect these other items? And that was kind of like a, like a red mm. herring. Like we actually need someone to open this so we can get to these other items to get to the real weapon and like bring these heroes of the ages back or whatever so i feel like there's there's too many layers we still need everyone involved Mm. and so it just made no fucking sense to me that the book would end with rand honestly thinking he can just fuck off (laughs) and lord agomar lays out is this the first time somebody has said clearly that literally what the horn does is bring all the Mm -hmm. the heroes of old uh like back to life that will summon an army of of like resurrected age of legends basically and and she and he wants to blow it now and like go the stop the the the, the dark one's army while they're at their weakest in the past and she said no, no 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 we're not the pieces aren't in place yet there's prophecy to get to we have to set all this up it's got to go to Ilian. no the horn needs to get to go to Ilian. we can't waste it now we only get our one chance to blow it properly um yeah it does feel like so much is you almost get the sense maybe maybe along what you said dan maybe this wasn't even the ending written in here and it was all going to be in the great hunt and expanded in more detail and somebody's like no no you need to have something climactic happen happen at the end here and and that that's why it feels so rushed through i, I don't know i don't know i we, 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 it, it's just too many to katie's point she she mapped out a better ending because there's no there yeah, doesn't feel yeah. like payoff for 750 pages um you could have easily mapped it up they all get like a trait that helps them to kind of band together and fight so many mm-hmm. characters feel like dragged along to, to, to everyone's point on this call just like you could have had like yeah so pairing with the wolves like matt could have like it could have been the dark like it would have been a fascinating um dynamic if that dark power was at odds with the other dark power so then that might have helped hmm. try to protect him or fight i thought there could have been an interesting dynamic where you have multiple antagonists and the one possessing uh matt wants to keep alive and save yeah. so actually challenges i was like that could have been so cool because then this dark power is helping them to take all this other dark power because it wants to rule i was like you i don't i don't get like what the antagonist goal is aside from like i'm a dark lord and i want to conquer the earth it just feels very Mm. like cliche fantasy i'm like what is his overall goal he's always around like if you actually stop and think about his motives does he just want to rule the world like is it that basic well we know he wants to break free because he is in a prison outside time yeah and he and he's been around forever too like they, the cycles make it seem like he's ageless and he's always around so is this whole purpose just to destroy the wheel i think i i started like after the book concluded i was sitting there like what is the overall purpose of this like dark evil aside from the very like um western view of like religion where there's always a dark and a light and they're always at odds with each other but i always want to question like the why what is the purpose and it doesn't feel like the dark one has much of an overall game plan of like what he's really trying to do so i couldn't really connect with the antagonist at all because he just feels too one-dimensional to me at the moment so maybe they'll flesh out what the antagonist mm-hmm. is actually trying to do in the series but we need more of a payoff for like 750 pages they could have had <laughs> like more of a conclusion for this book before being like we have another like 800 700 page book to read so like, give us a moment of like breathing don't be like like i i agree with katie but at the <laughs> same time i sort of disagree because i feel like other books like harry potter you can be like he's gone for now and he might come back but there's still this moment of payoff in sorcerer's stone when it's like they yeah. concluded their first year they're all together they have like some happy moments we don't get any of that it's like i almost feel for rand because he's like i killed him and they're like no he didn't do anything it's like he's gone for the moment <laughs> but, like 
no payoff for any of the characters. They never even got to Tarvalon in this book, mm. which was like the primary yeah. goal for the longest stretch of the book. So I just feel like it's so inconclusive to what everything was leading to. It feels like a Band-Aid instead of an actual proper like breathing moment and like acceptance of like this is the end of a first book. Well, and does it even make sense with anything else? Because like this entire time, they've all been saying like, we're not fucking going anywhere without anyone else. And now yep. as soon as one big thing happens, Rand's like, eh, I don't give a shit. No, I'm like- leaving you guys. <laughs> And then, like, he also, like, shock Pikachu face when the green man calls Perrin wolf brother and Rand's like... (gasps) Yeah, because nobody talks about anything. And then he never asks him about it. He's supposed to be one of your best fucking friends. You just found out (laughs) something about him. And you're just Mm. like, man, fuck you. And leaving? Like, I just, I don't, I don't buy it at all. All of it, this is just, like, bullshit. Like, it feels like he had, like, Robert Jordan had too many things he was trying to do. And so it kind of all fell apart. Hmm. I was also really waiting to see them actually use the eye of the world in some way here, like to visually see it, because Mm. it almost feels like if Rand teleported to the battle, why didn't they all just go to the battle in the first place? Of course, I wouldn't want them to do that because I liked the blight and the green man and the eye of the world and the book is called the eye of the world. But here, it seemed like, why weren't they, like, why didn't we get to visually see what they did with the eye of the world mm. in regard to, um, you know, trying to get the Dark One's cage, you know, firmed up again? Like, it seemed, t- I was surprised to not see that. And it almost felt like, well, if the real battle was at the battle, why didn't they just all go there? Well, Caleb, to your to that point, Katie, that you're mentioning, and I, I was so confused by this, but with the description you were giving Caleb a little earlier um, on this episode, were you saying he used the eye in that final battle, like he drained it, and it was like no longer there and it was broken? I didn't get that at all. So I was like, wait, yeah. so is the eye still around? Like, this what is... was the purpose of the eye? Like, I didn't get that could... connection between Rand siphoning its energy. Yeah, because we don't <sighs> see it, right? Like, we yeah. don't. Yeah, we don't see the pool drain. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, like, I know that sounds like a silly, like, I needed to see the pool drain, but like, Mm -hmm. I felt like we were there and I wanted some kind of like visual connection between that magical pool and what Rand was doing, I guess. He does, it's the same thing that Brandon Sanderson will do uh, a decade and change later with the end of Mistborn, where, uh, where. Um, the main character who Vin, is it Vin or Ven? She finds the pool, the pool of power that the that the Lord Ruler had uh, that had stored up underneath here, and uh, she she or it's either the first or second book. You know, she grabs it and then she releases it, and it's like, psych, you wasted it, you fucked up. That's not what it was there for. That was not its intended purpose. And now now you screwed everything up, and we're gonna have to deal with the fallout in the next book. It's not Spoilers. said explicit. Well, it's yeah. not said explicitly here, but it is shown implicitly that what Rand does with the eye here is not at all what anybody has said that you're supposed to use the eye for, except maybe for the protecting the things in here. But he doesn't seal. He doesn't put a patch on the Dark One's prison. He doesn't seal them back in. Uh, Agnor grabs the power, and then Rand manages to overpower, or Agnor blows himself up trying to grab it, and Rand takes what's left of it and then uses it to destroy a Shadow Spawn army and incinerate. Balsamon's physical form. Wait, was that, uh, and, so that, and then, that tether was the eye of the world connecting to both of them on the top of the mountain? Yes. Oh, yeah. It's I so, con- oh, so oh, ambiguous. Yes, that's what the light report. is. Oh, I thought that was like the no, dragon, like no. light state. Oh, wow. No, they're what, draining they it the whole time. 
Exactly. It's, it's like if you're, if you're frame, framing this moment, like why, like Katie said, why don't we see the eye? Why don't we see like you don't have like you don't have to have them do it on top of the hill. You could have them fight over it in front of the pool where the yeah, water like in the is surging up in light. Yes, it's the oh, light of, from the eye surging into Agenor as he then burns himself up trying to take all of it because he's fighting. I didn't he's not get so, that at all. Yeah, no. and that's not what he's supposed to do. We learned that Ag in the middle of this, we learned that Agenor is actually disobeying Baalzaman's orders. Balzaman was not supposed to grab the eye for himself. Balzaman was supposed to capture Rand uh, or whoever the dragon is among the group uh, and so that they could be brought before Balzaman. And then Rand is supposed to serve the Dark One from their perspective and use the eye to free the Dark One. And Agenor is like, no, why shouldn't I take it? After all, it's mine. I was just as powerful uh, greed, yeah. as Luz Theron. And, and, and Balzman also anticipated this, that Agenor's greed might, that, you know, so Agenor is not supposed to do that, but he does. And he grabs it for himself. And him doing that is what shows Rand how to grab the eye of, the eye of how to connect to the power in there, which he does after, and then they start to struggle over it. And in the process of struggling over it, Agenor tries to draw the entire pool into himself and blows up. And Rand then takes the entire uh, all, all of that power flows through that cord of light in the ram. But yeah, the first and that second time I read it, I, I did not know what the, what the cord of light was. <laughs> nah, yeah. I had no fucking idea. That makes so idea. much more sense. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that makes so much more yeah. sense in that whole scene it's setup. A mess. It's, it's yeah. such a mess. Oh, wow. That the show works, could fix this, but it doesn't they could, work. Yeah, yeah. Like, he doesn't make it work, but that's a great way of, like, that's an interesting character dynamic where this guy gets greedy and that causes... Yes. Wow. Well, that description uh -huh. you just gave is a hundred times better than what we digested. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I think feel like... Yep. Well, I just gonna say like I feel like uh, like an idiot, <laughs> like reading it. No, I'm you're like, not. You're not. It's, it's so like, confusing. What the hell? Like I feel like I didn't like this. Feels like you know in like eleventh grade English class where your teacher is asking <laughs> you like, what is all the context of this fucking book? It's like I don't fucking know. I apparently am surface level only. I don't know. So I need the spark notes. So this this feels because I literally wrote down like, why do they have rope attached to them? What the fuck is the rope? Like that yes. made no goddamn sense to me. But I have a question about the eye. So when yeah, yeah. they spend so much time kind of describing it, and I think it's like Matt like kicks a fucking rock into it because he's a dick mm -hmm. right now for some reason. <laughs> but they're describing there's like crystals or something in the eye yeah. and only some of them are lit up or have like light. And what was that? I am not even sure. It just there's crystals around the edge, and some of them are glowing, and I have no idea what those are. Okay. Yeah, it's just it's vague. But wow, I'm just I'm still blown away by the fact <laughs> I got yeah. the greed thing, but I didn't put the greed thing together. He's like, he got greedy, and that was his downfall. Yeah. I thought he just tried. Yeah. He was my interpretation was he they manifested recently. They're still new. They acted like they had just gotten back from the grave or whatever from their own prison because Marine literally says they just like popped. They were at like the brink of the prison hole that they like mm -hmm. popped through like this yep. cage holding him. My interpretation was he used too much of his power once getting out and he wasn't supposed to be like exerting himself so much and he kind of destroyed that manifestation of himself it was like locked away again i didn't get wow that was super vague that he was channeling from the the eye i mm -hmm. thought he was just over exerting himself because he had just recently gotten out and they said he got greedy on the power i'm like yeah and it's such an it's such it. an easy fix the show can fix this so easily by doing what you all said have the battle take place so we can see the eye show us what is happening directly show us the the flow of light through the, like rather than the cord ambiguously and this is see this is this is like an advertisement for the cr how critical beta readers are before you publish something to send your send your book to a bunch of a bunch of people whose opinions you trust and have and have them let you know when yeah i have no idea what's going on here and uh, and like hear their interpretations of the chapter because it is 
Yep. Uh, a very, very confusing uh, finale here, which may, the show could, I feel, yeah. If So so, you, so do y'all think maybe if the show does what Katie described with, you know, with, with them as, as friends working together and, and what Keely described as having Egwene and Nynaeve using their power instead of like Rand teleporting off alone all over places. And if we visualize all of this properly with the eye and with Agenor, it could be pretty spectacular, maybe if they, if they do it right, like feels like it could work with just uh, fixing the details of it, maybe. Yeah, and like the characters are much more exciting, too, so we actually care about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm kind of, I'm, I'm getting this vibe, and I'm, I'm hoping that it will stay where uh, in, it was my last semester of undergrad, I binged the first four books of Song of Ice and Fire, um, but I did that <laughs> while watching the show, and the show helped me put so many things into context yeah. at the beginning of like all the different players and all the different people and shit, and I feel like, you know, as kind of frustrating and difficult as it's been to bounce between the show version of the characters and the book version the show is definitely helping me visualize things um Mm -hmm. because i feel slightly more able to explain what wheel of time is to people still very confused on a lot of it but i feel (laughs) like you know the show is helping me to at least understand it a little bit better um because this is my very first experience with any of it um so you know just just having such a, a vast ridiculous world that he spent how long creating um it, it helps to have that kind of like support material and then having you explain things that clearly we all fucking yeah. missed so it's helpful if you're here yeah, i do think it's fair for our listeners to kind of clarify because i think this has been brought up like offline we've discussed this too but just i mean this has been really fun to do and i i do i have enjoyed this book I have a lot of criticisms and sometimes I think I need to like check like the criticisms. I think I need to start with like the positives before diving into like kind of like a lot of things I don't like. I think mm. we're dissecting them because we do enjoy a lot of his world building <laughs> and we do enjoy the book over. At least I, I was speaking for myself. I've, I've enjoyed this and I like it. I almost like some of his world building elements better than like Lord of the Rings and what Tolkien did. So it's, it, it's interesting to me. I don't like his characters, but I have enjoyed the book and reading through <laughs> yeah. it. I, I like real, I'm really glad we kind of like kickstarted this and I've been enjoying, I think the show makes me like the characters a lot more. Yeah. Even though there's things I don't like about the show. I think together they make an interesting like fantasy watch and read experience. So I've enjoyed mm-hmm. that so far. That's a good segue for this week. An email that we got from Nikolai <laughs> who writes in to say, Hi all, big fan of the podcast. It was nice to find other people reading while watching the show. I am now nearing the end of The Great Hunt, and I just had a couple of comments on show things you talked about in the past episode, which for now is like two or three episodes ago, because, you know, we, we record ahead, sometimes well ahead of what people are hearing. Uh, I'll summarize some of this because parts of it are a little spoily, but Nik- Nikolai mentions one thing that you had a problem with, and he might be talking about me specifically, it seemed to be how Valda was being, you know, a little over-the-top, unnecessary evil to Perrin and Egwene. Uh, Nikolai says, in a chapter I recently read, Bornhold came to a town in Almuth Plain, I think, that had many bodies of dead children and women hanging, and basically the whole town was killed. Bornhold was pretty appalled by this. We find out it was the questioners who did this, so the ruthlessness in the show feels about right to me. We're just focusing, and I'm and I'm adding to Nikolai's words here, that we're kind of focusing on the questioners instead, and, and, and you know, bringing to the forefront the absolute worst elements of the um of uh of the white cloaks nikolai says the other one small thing was that the show implied moraine is very powerful for an Sedai, and you caleb didn't remember that in the book uh nikolai clarifies that this is probably something that i'm just misremembering and we do start to get hints that moraine is more powerful okay. than people know 
and there will be more of that to get into in the great in the great hunt and uh yeah and about how it takes immense power to do a certain thing and and talking about the Amerlin and moraine and, and implying that Nynaeve will be powerful enough to accomplish things that have not been dreamed of in a long time Nikolai did agree how loyal didn't seem uh, an unimpressive presence in episode five didn't seem big enough but I think ep six did a much better job of making him tower over moraine and lan with those camera angles you mentioned so I hope you liked that can't wait for the next podcast so thanks Nikolai for writing in Thank you for listening along, and I hope that we'll, uh, we'll continue to bring conversations melding both these two things together that you'll enjoy. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, or corrections of your own, like Nikolai, send them to contact at wattcast.net, and we'll answer them here on the show. Next time, we are going to be talking about episode seven of the show, and uh, there's only, only one left after that. We're done with the book for now. We're finished with Eye of the World. We won't be moving into The Great Hunt right away. We're going to wrap up the show first over the next couple of weeks of your time listening listening to this. And then we'll have a little bit of a holiday and winter break before we dive into The Great Hunt. But tune in very soon to hear our coverage of episode seven of the TV series, the penultimate episode leading up to hopefully a pretty climactic finale. We'll see whether uh, whether we feel differently about the way they portray the ending, given our, our mixed feelings on things we liked, things we, we didn't quite like in in Jordan's version on the page here. This episode of Wattcast was produced by yours truly. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Caleb Wimble. Katie, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me at katiejarvis.com or on Instagram at 30 in LA. Dan, where can people find you? You can find me at um, on Instagram and Twitter under the handle Pansy Dan. Keely, where can people find you? On Twitter and Instagram at Keely underscore reads. And remember, you can find us all anytime at Wattcast.net. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Wattcast Podcast. You can also now find every episode of the show to date, except the bonus episodes, on YouTube. So head over to our YouTube page, which you can get to from Wattcast. If that's your preferred listening mechanism, if you like to see a little animation of waveforms jumping up and down as we talk, you can find us all there. And in the future, episodes will go up on our YouTube channel at the same time, because I know some people prefer that to a podcast app. And it's just one more place you can find us. You can also find us at patreon.com slash Wattcast, where you can support the show, even two dollars a month helps and you know five dollars a month tar volunteer you will get those bonus episodes with potentially another one coming pretty soon on a, on a special conversation about another show another high fantasy series premiering again this week we'll, we'll see we'll see if that comes to fruition just a little little tantalizing tidbit for you over the coming weeks you can uh, also support us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcast, your podcast platform of choice. This helps so much. If you actually write a review, it makes an enormous difference in bumping us up on the algorithm. The number one way we find new listeners is if you tell a friend about the show. Word of mouth means the world to us. Share us on social media or, you know, on the old, on the old IRL. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening, folks. And remember, this is not the ending. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the Wheel of Time, but this is an ending. Farewell.
whenever um, Sky sees the Wheel of Time book, the Eye of the World book, she goes, uh-huh. Mama. So I'm like, oh, I know I've been reading this book a long time. If, <laughs> if she's like, she's like, that's Mama's book. Wow. <laughs> we have a lot of books, but only that one is Mama's. <laughs> And if we could do, uh, do, are we able to do one last quick clap? I don't know if you can, Katie, with uh, your precious cargo in your arms here. See, but. I think I can still clap. <laughs> okay. I got a uh, 316.35. Let's do uh, 45, 50, and 55. I'll clap with me, Sky. Awesome. Sorry, I went over over the time there, Katie. I, I need to. Uh, I, no worries. I, I, it was the ending episode. <laughs> I pretty much expected it. <laughs> oh, she's so cute. Like when you were clapping, yeah. she's like so into that. She's like, <laughs> <laughs> when's it gonna happen? Yeah. <laughs> you say hi. Say hey, hi. Sky. Hi. You want to Heard heard you've been seeing Mama's book. Is that what you say? Ma- ma- oh Mama's yeah, book? look, you love out? this book, right? <laughs> I love to take the bookmark out so mom gets her page. <laughs> yeah, it's a great book, right? Is that mama's book? It's so big. Mama, yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Oh, she's so adorable. Have a, oh, we do, do we have a scheduled? I can't remember what happened. Oh, um, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. Shoot. 